Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Hope everybody had a good holiday season. I feel refreshed uh, and slightly stressed out because I somehow made it to and from the state of California without getting stopped at the border. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by the 100 Club of Arizona. I don't have a relationship with them. I shouldn't say brought to you by. One thing I want to do lately is uh, just shout out nonprofit organizations. If you're not familiar with the 100 Club of Arizona, uh, started all the way back in Detroit in 1952, and uh, William M. Packer, uh, who owned the largest like Pontiac dealership in the area, got 50 friends together, uh, and they were able to uh, help out the family of a fallen officer, and that idea has just sort of metastasized and grown uh, to, I think he, almost each state has, has a 100 Club or uh, something similar to it. So shout out to the guys from 100 Club, guys and women uh, from 100 Club. So uh, happy to uh, to be working with them. You can get their license plate if you're in the state of Arizona at uh, servicearizona.org, and it's the Black American flag license plate. With me today, Chief Deputy Matt Thomas from the Pinal County Sheriff's Office, 27-year veteran, uh, law enforcement officer. We're going to dive into all sorts of things today. It's going to get weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and his mustache is the uh, is the ghost of Wyatt Earp. So, <laughs> Matt, thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, absolutely. My mustache told me I had to be here. <laughs> mustache told you, hey, mustache, is, uh, mustache says mustache goes, That's my friend. Right. So, uh, screw policy. That's what I say, <laughs> unless the chief of my police department's listening to this, and then I don't say screw policy. Uh, so Matt, again, man, I appreciate the hell of you coming down. It's been, uh, uh, it was an interesting 2020 and it's shaping up to be an even more interesting. Oh, dude, we made it like five days. We made it five days. <laughs> I did see a pretty solid one and this chick walks past the sign and it's, uh, days without incident in 2021. There's a five and she flips the five off, puts a zero on, and then just starts chugging a bottle of wine as she cruises off, yep. uh, off screen there. Uh, Matt, I start every, uh, every podcast with the same question, man. You can sit down and have a drink with anybody alive or dead. Who do you choose? Oh man, alive or dead. See, I kind of screwed you. The last guest had like five days notice to figure out an answer, <laughs> man. Um, that is a tough one. I, I don't know. It, it's a toss up for me. My, my grandpa was like my hero. So probably him first and and uh, a close second would be ronald reagan <laughs> all right yeah I, yeah I can deal with both of those man uh i i will uh i will say that i would probably say either of my grandfathers as well i uh i only knew one of them uh my dad's dad i never got to meet which was a crying shame but uh yeah I, i'm right there with you on that one um and I think you and I would probably both, we would be okay sitting down with Wyatt Earp. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I can't yeah. grow a mustache to the same level, so I'd be the odd man. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would have, that would be a cool conversation because you could just kind of ask him like, hey, dude, is my mustache cool? Or, you know, does my mustache, right? does it, is it acceptable? Right. And then you could ask him, hey, this is what's going on in the world. And then just watch him lose his mind. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, so Matt, 27 years in law enforcement, you started in oh, 1993. Yeah. I started in Pinnell in 1993. I won't tell you what year I was born. We'll just call it good there. <laughs> it's all good. That, that, uh, I get that all the time now. I actually, when I was a Lieutenant still, um, I was helping one of our young female deputies box some, uh, evidence up. And she says, uh, I said, Hey, how old are you? And at the time she says, well, I'm 27, I think. I was like, oh my God, my daughter's 27. <laughs> so weird to <laughs> be working with a kid. Uh, yeah, but uh, started at Pinnell, started in our jail actually um, for Sheriff Reyes, who just recently passed away this week. Um, and he was, man, he was a 24 year sheriff. Um, so he had been like a legend there. And I started 
93 working for him. Wow. Wow. 27 years as a sheriff. 24. Uh, 24, 24 years yeah. as a sheriff. That's That's got to be pretty impressive. Yeah, it uh, does. Hopefully, hopefully Sheriff Lamb can keep that momentum going. I don't know if he wants to keep that going. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know what? I'm just going to head out now, guys. It's been fun. Yeah. I'm over it. He, uh, when he first took office, he was he was all about four terms, you know, 16 years. Sure. Uh, and I think that's whittled down to three terms now just because of, you know, the pressure of that job. Right. Um, so I don't know what he's going to do, if he's going to be three and out or, you know, who knows. He's, it's like he's a, the, uh, the 20-year guys that I talked to. I'm like, well, hey, you guys are still here. Yeah, but I'm one bad day away from yeah. just being like, fuck this game, I'm out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of the running joke, of, you know, in our in our office with it. You, you got myself, the sheriff, and our third in command who's over patrol, and we and he and I can both go at any time, and that's kind of our our running joke. Is everybody asks like, when are you going to retire? I'm like, uh, you know, I think here, but it could be tomorrow. You right? Know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Four sound good yeah, to everybody. Right, All right, right, sounds good. I'll turn all my stuff in and and, and uh, then, dude, once you get this many years, and I think once you pass twenty, um, but now especially like the holidays, I took a week off. You take a week off, you come back, and you're like. Ah. I don't really know if I want to stay right. at this. Yeah, you, know? you, you come, it's it's hard to, I mean, it's it can be hard to come back oh, after. Yeah. I took, yeah. my son was born uh, three weeks early, and so I ended up taking seven weeks off instead oh, of four. Wow. Yeah. I, dude, the joke was I was going to have to go through FTO all over again because yep. it's like, did you forget how to be a police officer? They changed our whole CAD system, nice. our report writing system. I came back to him like, uh, <laughs> I don't understand any of this anymore. Yep. Yep. And that's, you know, for me, the funny thing is, like, I still feel like a cop sometimes because I dress up like one. But, uh, dude, if I had to work the street right now, I I don't think I could pass FTO just because they have advanced so far with uh, our computer system and all the stuff they do now compared to what sure. they were doing when I was actually, you know, doing the job. But there's a there's a there is a fine line there because you get officers, you know, such as yourself who have spent 20 plus years in the job and you've. I hesitate to say you've seen it all because there's always stuff that'll surprise you, right. but you've seen and done so much within your career that you have a lot to teach, you know, guys like me, you know, five or less years, five or fewer years uh, on the job. Right. Um, so long as they're willing to learn. And it's, um, there almost seems to be this cyclical game of, okay, the newer officers come in, they learn, they learn from the old breed as it were. Right. And then, they then transition into becoming the old breed. And it, yep. it's, you know, the lessons that you may teach, for example, that female deputy, you know, those years ago, she may hand down right to, to somebody when, should she ever end up in your position. Right. And, and you know, the weirdest thing when you get this far into the game is there are now guys retiring who I taught in the academy. And you, you think back and you're like, oh my God. Um, but it's cool to talk to them because to your point, you never really know the impact you have on people. And then you'll have people come back towards the end of their career and they'll tell you, man, you really had an impact on me. You know, you taught me the, this in the academy or that in the academy, or I worked with you in this location. And, um, you know, you told me this, this, and this, and that stuck with me. And it's, it's really cool to see that legacy of, uh, and it's not really of yourself. It's of the job. See that legacy carried on because you taught something and they took a little piece of what you taught and they, you know, now they're teaching it. They're an FTO or they're a Sergeant or a Lieutenant and uh, they're mentoring people, and it is—it's uh, a cool cycle to watch. And I would have got to have to imagine there's a certain amount of pride to that point. Oh yeah, that looking at them and going, like, hell yeah, good work. Like, right. Like yeah. I'm proud of you. 
like thank you thank you for listening to me now i know you were listening i'm pretty sure my uh, my lead fto adam every now and then he may wonder if i was listening to him so he might also still be bitter about that time i nearly got us into a fatal collision going head on into traffic but that's neither here nor there um uh, that was a he <laughs> he says i'm the only one who still thinks about it but i, I don't know i don't know man um well, going into into your career, so you started back in, in 93 with detention. Uh, how long did you work the jail? Was it a requirement when you started with the sheriff's department that you had to work the jails? No, it was not. Um, it the, the trend at the time, though, was that the sheriff would hire out of the jail more than he would off the street. Okay. So he would hire, he would take, uh, it's probably four to one. Um, so for every four that would come out of the jail, he would hire one off the street. Um, so it helped to get in the jail first and to get your door in or get your foot in the door to be a deputy. And at the time I had applied all over the place. I was, I was 20 years old when I started applying everywhere. Um, Pinnell, I applied for DOC. I applied for Maricopa County, I think Phoenix PD, um, and Pinnell was the first one to call me and my mom had actually moved us. I grew up in South Phoenix. I grew up down at Central and uh, South Mountain Avenue. And she had moved us from there down to Queen Creek in uh, I think it was 87 because uh, like a lot of my buddies and stuff, a couple of my buddies had already been shot and one was already on his way to prison. And so she wanted to get me out of that area and get us out of that area. So we moved out to Queen Creek and that was kind of how I put in for Pinnell and got to know Pinnell because we were kind of right on the line there. Um, so got called by them, got picked up, went to detention. I worked in there for, I want to say it was about eight months and, uh, went to the Academy, um, got in a little bit of trouble in my first Academy. I got sent back to my agency. I thought I was going <laughs> to, I thought I was going to lose my job at that point. And, and uh, luckily Sheriff Reyes, um, I requested a meeting with him uh, sat down with him and, and explained, you know, here's what happened. He says, all right, I'm going to give you another shot, but we're going to send you to a different academy uh, because at that time he and the director of that academy were not getting along, and so he felt it had something to do with that. So he sent me down to Alita, which was a thing back then, um, down in Tucson, and uh, so I went through Alita and finished, graduated from Alita in 95, and I uh, went to my first assignment, which was the Apache Junction area. So I worked as a deputy up in Apache Junction and kind of down in Queen Creek. But Queen Creek was way different at that time. Uh, we would have hardly any calls down there. Um, then I, at, from patrol in 97, I went into traffic. And our traffic unit at the time was doing fatals, DUIs. And we were also attached to the uh, Narcotics Task Force doing drug interdiction. So I got to that's where I got introduced to um, interdiction out on like I-10 and, and down in the south part of our county. And that's where I kind of got introduced to, back then they weren't really cartels, but it was, you know, the, the Mexican um, chunk of drug runners, but they, they hadn't really become the cartels that they are now. Um, <clears throat> did traffic till 2001. In 2001, um, this and this was old school stuff. Uh, a narc sergeant and a narc corporal pulled me into an office and said, "Hey, we want you to go to work for us." And so I thought, as an interdiction officer, because I was high and tight, and you know, I looked every bit of a cop. Um, and they said, "No, no, we want you to come in and work undercover." And I'm like, well, have you, you, "Like you've seen me, right? I'm flat top and all that." And, uh, <laughs> the one corporal, uh, and he he remained a really good friend and mentor to me in the undercover world. 
Uh, but he told me, he's like, nah, dude, it's not about your look. It's about, you know, how you carry yourself, what you know, your street smarts, all that kind of stuff and, and where you grew up really. And I said, okay, cool. So I went undercover in 2001, no 2000. And, uh, I did that until 2001 where I tested for Sergeant and I did the typical, I'm going to test just to, you know, take the test and get the experience and all that. And I ended up number one on the list. And so then I had a really hard decision to make. And I was not going to take the promotion. I was actually going to pass and stay in narcs because I loved doing the undercover stuff. Um, but my undercover sergeant called me in and uh, he basically told me, like, dude, you're going to take this because, you know, don't pass this up. You, you need to take this. And I was like, well, man, I love doing undercover. And he's like, yeah, it'll always come back. Don't worry. So. I promoted, went back to patrol, uh, did the patrol thing for a little bit as a sergeant, and then I moved in to training as a training sergeant, and I did that, and I also ran what was Carlotta back then, which is, it was our uh, police academy down in um, uh, the Coolidge, Cass Grand area. Um, I ran that academy and ran our training division at the agency, and then uh, from there, I moved back into undercover narcotics and uh, I took that over as the sergeant and did that until about 2009 in 2009 we got this uh, new sheriff that came over from Chandler PD and when he came in he decided that he wanted a motor unit and somehow my name got thrown in the hat to stand that up and run it so I then became the motor sergeant for um, what became our first motor unit for our agency. So I was one of two first motors for Pinal County, ran that unit until 2010 in December, 2010, I got promoted to Lieutenant and, uh, moved in to take command of the SWAT team. And, and by the, this whole time, our SWAT team's a collateral team. So this whole time since 97, I had been on the team and had kind of moved up from operator to uh, team leader. And now I took command of the team and 2010, December 2010, um, and then finished out as a lieutenant through 2016, and as a lieutenant, I ran our team, I ran our anti-smuggling crew, I ran our undercover narcotics crew, um, and there was a, a few times in that time frame that I was also running um, some of the regular, like property crimes, persons crimes, uh, stuff here and there, and then uh, in 2016, when uh, Mark Lamb ran for sheriff after he won the primary, um, he hit me up and said, hey, your name has been popping up and I'd like to interview you if you're willing to be my second in command. And so I said, actually, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested. So that kind of catapulted me from lieutenant to chief. So when he, uh, when he won in November of that year, uh, he officially offered me the job and then I spent the end of November and December of that year kind of transitioning into that position. And then January of 2017, he took office and I moved into the chief deputy position and been there since. Yeah. And, uh, we were before the show, we were joking about how, uh, career that's, that spanned really the, the whole range that you can almost go through, 
uh, and now you're sitting there looking at uh, at cost analysis <laughs> reports and in meetings, and uh, I think yeah. you said something about the cost of a piece of paper per piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I would. I. I was telling you, I was in a meeting, and this is when I knew I was doomed to never be a cop again. Um, I was in a meeting as as a brand new chief deputy. I think I was a couple months in, and and we were going over cost analysis of how much it costs per piece of paper to print either color or black and white. And, you know, where we could cut costs in those areas. And I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? Because you think back through your career and there was never a time where I thought I would be in a meeting like that and making those kind of decisions. So, yeah, this is this has definitely been a switch for me because I was going 100 miles an hour with uh, with NARC SWAT and all that stuff and and uh, doing cool guy stuff. And that all came to a screeching halt. And it's kind of a it's uh it's tough in, in the beginning because you, I, like, I'm still driven to do that stuff. I still love doing that stuff. I, I was just out with our SWAT guys yesterday. Um, they were doing some CQB stuff, and uh, I went out with them just to hang out, just to watch, just to kind of, you know, see some of the stuff they're doing and, and really just hang out with cops. <laughs> and um, you tend to long for and miss that stuff, but this is 100% administrative and, and, uh, um, I have to force myself. I have to make, uh, gaps on my schedule so I can go and just be out on the street or right. go hang with the SWAT guys or, you know, do whatever. The cool thing about this position is I can go do whatever I want. So right, right, I, right. who's going to say no to you? <laughs> yeah. So if I call up the gang squad and I'm like, Hey, I want to ride with you guys, then, you know, I get to ride with the gang squad. So, um, that, that piece is cool. Um, but I also understand my spot and, and uh, um, you know, like there's times where they're, Hey chief, you want to, you want to jump in? I'm like, dude, no, come on, man. I don't want to screw up like that. And I don't want to be that guy. So, uh, you know, I'm just happy hanging out with, with cops and watching cops sure, do cop sure. stuff. And then it also helps because, um, Hey, there's that fellowship there because I, I always, I'm not a big, I'm a very big guy on, on structure and protocol. So I get the whole, you know, chief this or chief that, um, but I'm also just Matt. I'm just a dude, right? And and when I'm out with the guys, especially when I'm with narcs or SWAT guys and stuff like that, it's really nice because they just treat you like a dude. And you kind of drop all the protocol bullshit and you can just be a guy with other guys who are doing the job and it makes it nice. And then you also get to see, because what tends to happen, as you know, in law enforcement is as as, as there's needs at ground level, and those needs get filtered up to the top, uh, they get filtered. And so what you, the cop on the street, need and what I'm told you need end up being different by the time it gets to me, right? Which is, it's a hard thing to to break through. I've been trying to do it for four years and you just can't do it. So it's nice to be around ground-level guys, see the equipment they're using, see where they're having failures and then kind of talk to them like, why, why are you using this? Why are you using that? Well, we would rather have this, but this is what we were given. And I'm like, well, that's bullshit. You know, I can fix that. Right. And so that's kind of been my thing is, is, uh, seeing what the guys and cows need to do their job and cutting through all the bullshit and just getting it done. Um, which it can piss off everybody in between sometimes, but, uh, it's not like, it's not like they're backdooring the system to come to me right. to bitch. I'm going down there and I'm asking the ground level people and I'm actually looking and, and seeing what, what works, what doesn't. 
uh, because I always hated the ivory tower thing where we had decision makers making a decision for us and we would get shit and we'd be like, this is stupid. You right. Know, this, and I still do that sometimes because I'm telling you in your office, there's shit that sounds really great. Like, you, you know, you're like, this is a brilliant idea and this will work so great. And then you implement it and then you go talk to some people you trust will give you the truth. And they're like, dude, this is the stupidest shit we've ever yeah, seen. This is the good idea fairy show. <laughs> yeah, up. exactly. Yeah. Like, really? It seemed like legit when I was going through it. It seemed like it really helped. And they're like, no, it caused this, this, and this. And you don't see that ripple effect if you're not in the job. And so it, it really helps being out with the guys to to just filter through all that shit. And, and the sheriff does the same thing. He's out all the time with the guys. Well, yeah, I see you guys on your on your social media. I mean, both of you are out there with, you know, out of rest carriers and and your your sidearms and rifles. And you're out there, you're, you're on the beat, you're, you're out in a marked you know, patrol vehicle, uh, and you're still out there doing, doing hood rat shit and, and, you know, and, and, and playing jump out squad and and jump the chump. And, um, I, I have to say that I, I truly as from a, again, I am a baseline patrol officer. Um, that'll change here in a couple of weeks. Cause I get, I get a transition up to the detective bureau, which I think nice. will, will be a little bit weird to, uh, I've been told you're right. It will be weird to yeah. you leave patrol after having done that for almost four years and you're sitting at a desk and they're yeah. like, yes, yeah, so we're going to take lunch for three hours. Right. And you're well, like, well, you do become an expert at food, bro. That <laughs> hey, is a good thing. I, and I like food. So that's all, you know, that explains, my brother-in-law's a detective. That probably explains yeah. why he's a foodie now. Dude, detectives <laughs> and firefighters are almost on the same level of knowledge of food. I have to say, the firefighters are probably better cooks, though, because it's oh, all, yeah, but, for sure, yeah. dude. Yeah. But the detectives know all the good restaurants. Well, and you get I, the authentic food. So yesterday, our medics on our, our team, the, the, the hose draggers, they were all, when I walked up, they were like, bro, your mustache is epic. And I was like, yeah. And so I told, I, I went and met with the team commander and I was like, dude, the firefighters are trying to recruit me with this stash, man. They, <laughs> this is, this is legit shit. They already asked me to play Xbox with them. Oh, that, yeah. You're, you're one of the, you're our, Let's just get you a hat with the engine number on yep, it because you're already it, there. We'll get that's you uh, an AIFF sticker for the back of your <laughs> back of your truck. Uh, yeah, I already lifted my truck like eight inches right after that. Oh, perfect. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Do you? But you have to go around telling everybody that you're a firefighter. Oh, right. And yeah, if you don't yeah. see a fire, you have to put your turnout gear in the barbecue so that it looks like it's been used. <laughs> so we should talk you firefighters. We do love you. Yes, we do. Uh, uh, I, I've had some firefighters that have been absolutely stellar on the job. Yeah. Uh, one of our SWAT snipers, his wife is a is a firefighter, and she helped me. I had a call the other night, and it's one of those ones where you walk into it and you're talking to this person, and you know it's bullshit. Right. Everything they're saying is is bullshit. This lady, you'd have thought that she'd just gone like three full rounds with uh, with Mike Tyson and <laughs> and survived, lived to tell the tale. And, uh, and, uh, this guy's wife is like, yeah, so where are you hurt? And she's pushing on and she's like, uh, it hurts right there, like right there. And she goes, well, you're pushing on it awful hard for something that says you can't, or you say you can't walk. Right. And the girl is just like, um, um, so no, shout out to all the firefighters out yeah. there. We really, we only should talk to you because we're jealous. That's so, it. That's it. <laughs> it's it's the recliners, the, the big red fire trucks, the Xboxes, yeah. the nice kitchens. sleeping on duty, sleeping oh. on duty must be nice. Getting paid to sleep if yes. it's a if it's a, a calm night. But uh, my agency is going back to uh, to you know getting what the ground level people want. Right. Um, my agency has a process called relationship by objective, and the nice thing about that is that it there's not really any filtering that that takes place i mean if i went two years in a row and and one of the things that i'd asked for um after seeing uh 
some some shootings that had taken place were uh, armored door panels for our our patrol Tahoes. Right. Come to find out, those are wildly expensive. Yes, but at least the chief of police was the one who heard it and went like, "Hey, the, I understand where you're coming from. Right. The data that like." We have not had very many situations in our history where we've needed those. Oh, and it's a thousand dollars a door. Oh, and the weight that gets added to the vehicle, you got to yep. relearn how to drive the vehicle. But it was it, at least it went that far, right. you know, to to somebody uh, within the the chain of command. Well, and that's something um, that the sheriff and I also did uh, because when we when he took office, we had a union that actually had collective bargaining with the county. They had been recognized by the board and and had the position to collectively bargain. And um, as we moved into, I think it was the end of 2017 into 2018, that it was 2018, yeah. So um, the collective bargaining was up and the county actually came to us, the, the sheriff and I, and said, hey, um, we kind of want to let this go by the wayside and let it sunset because we don't feel it's needed anymore. We feel that it was very important for the last administration because they weren't employee relation friendly. And we felt that we needed this to help circumvent some of the things they were doing that were not in the best interest of employees. But now we feel you guys are doing a good job of that and we're not worried about it. So we'd like to let this sunset. We said, cool, we're, we're not opposed to that. And so, um, they did. They let it go. So our unions lost their collective bargaining, which, uh, you know, the union people will say that's bullshit, which is fine. You know, that's that's their stance. But I can tell you what the union turned into compared to what it was designed for. It had become two different things. And they had moved to a position where they wanted to start dictating how we did things. And uh, I, I don't think that's a good position for them. I don't think I think they should focus on employee problems not try to drive what direction the administration goes or what our um, you know goals and objectives are. So anyways, we move away from the union and, and I went to the sheriff and I said, hey, I have an idea um, that I think will work better than the union because what would happen is once a month we would meet with the union leaders, but you're meeting with two people that are giving you their version of what they say their members want. And a lot of times what I found is there were personal battles mixed in with yep. those. And uh, I really wasn't about the personal battles. So I said, what I'd like to do now that the unions are, are kind of going by the wayside is create this employee work group where we have representation from throughout the agency. So we have civilian staff, we have detention staff, and we have patrol staff. And we have a uh, once every other month we meet with them and we sit down in a room and we as the sheriff and I, we sit down in a room with all of them and uh, we kind of set the tone from the beginning. We said, rank is out the door. Don't worry about, you know, we're just, I'm Matt, he's the sheriff because <laughs> you can't really get right. around that one. But just throw the rank out the door. We want to hear the, the no bullshit version of what's going on in your area, what needs you have, what problems you have. And so we do that and that accomplishes a lot of what we're going for too because They'll come in with a laundry list of stuff. Hey, we would like this or that, or this would help our operations, or this is hindering our operations. And then we can dive into it, and um, I can cut through a lot of the bullshit and get them stuff they need. And then they have some great ideas. Like in our jail, we had they had some great ideas on restructuring how property was taken in, how it was packaged, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we were able to implement that after getting it from an employee. They said, I work in there. 
here's what I see as problems. And I'm like, that's perfect. And so we cut through all the bullshit, got it done and switched operations based on their input. So um, that has really helped to that point in, in getting a lot done for the line level for stuff they need. Right. Well, and I, I would say that, uh, I mean, like you get, you get some of the union folks in there who, oh, we look, no, we can't, we can't ever not have a union, but it's, it's almost like they're, I, I have previously to my career in law enforcement, never even been a part of a union. Uh, I was not, uh, my dad had been a part of a union back in like the seventies or the eighties when they were huge. And it was, a, it was really a part of like the American workforce. Um, but it, it was something completely unfamiliar to me to where I was like, well, what does the union do for me? Um, but when there is that they took away collective bargaining, but now they almost have it just under a different banner. Yeah. Right. And I think that, uh, that if you can give people, uh, that positive alternative that, Hey, like we're, yes, this is going away, but this is what we're going to put in its place. And, and having it already like ready to implement, unlike you know, hey, we're gonna defund the police department. So what are we gonna do in the meantime? I don't <laughs> actually know. Right. Um, well, and it also allows us to l- deliver messages throughout the agency. That again, if if I tell my lieutenants and my captains, here's here's the direction, here's the vision, and what I've found is, and it's not anything malicious, but the message gets changed, right? And so by the time it hits the ground level, sometimes it doesn't even make sense. They're like, this, what the fuck? What do you, what do you mean you're blind? By yeah. blue unicorns. We didn't ask for that. We asked for rifles. Right. So it allows us to, oops, sorry. No, it good. allows us to uh, speak directly to, and, and really at the end of the meeting, I'll, I'll open it, I'll open the floor and I'll just tell them like, is there anything you want to talk about? Is there any rumors that you've heard that you want us to kill or, or confirm or whatever? Um, and so we'll just have good discussion allow them to ask things and, and we'll tell them things and they'll, and they'll, they're pretty good. They'll, they'll ask like, Hey, we heard so-and-so got in trouble for this. And you know, we can't dive into the the details of right. stuff, but we'll, we'll be able to say, no, that's not true. And, and some of the stuff they come up with too, uh, some of the rumors that are out there, they'll say, Hey, we heard this. And like, I don't even know like where that came from. That was never a discussion. So that's just like some made up shit. So we're able to kill a lot of stuff. Um, and it allows them to take it back to their areas and say, no, this, you know, this wasn't true. Yes, this is what we're doing, or this is what they have planned, or, you know, we're going to get this equipment, whatever, and uh, lets it filter out. Yeah. Yeah. It, I see nothing wrong with, with you guys going with that method at all. I mean, it, it makes sense. I would say that you, you do need to have, uh, and we've, we've touched on a little bit, you need to have the, the folks that are a part of that process need to understand that it's not a trap when you, uh, when you and and Sheriff Lamb say, Hey, what do you like? What do you need? It's not on them to sit there, you know, sitting on their hands, shaking in their patrol boots going, God, I don't want to like, I don't want to speak out of place. Right. Like, am I going to get in trouble if I say this? Um, because I think that one thing that I've learned is that if you can cut through the bullshit and luckily, I mean, I've worked with teammates who don't bullshit me and I've worked for some really awesome supervisors, you know, sergeants and lieutenants and even precinct commanders who will, will, will just give you the, the straight story. Right. They're not going to, they're not going to sugarcoat it or try and make it easy on you or, and they're not going to, you know, try and pull the wool over your eyes. They're just going to give it to you straight. Yeah. And w- one of the things, one of the problems with our model can be when you have supervisors above those people that are meeting with us who feel slighted by the, by the information that's given, right. Or they feel like they should have been the ones delivering that right. message. So they, they get a little bit pissed off. And so you have to, 
you have to kind of ensure that you're talking to those people too. So if a captain or a lieutenant gets pissed off because, you know, deputy so-and-so told me some stuff that they felt should be handled at their level, you have to let them know like, hey, you you had better not go approach that deputy and chastise them or anything like that because that's the only way we get open communication is if we allow them to speak their mind and it's without repercussions and they're allowed to bring up whatever they want Mm -hmm. and we address it. Um, And then I put it back on the lieutenants and captains. It's kind of on you to foster those relationships so that they do come through you rather than feel like they have to wait to talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean the last, this last sergeant I had, there were, a number of times where it's like, okay, is this a sergeant officer conversation or is this like an Amanda Kevin conversation? Right. Uh, and, and she'd just, you know, lay it all on the line there. Uh, I want to circle back to, uh, I can't believe I just said circle back. I'm that guy now. <laughs> Great. Um, to, uh, to growing up, you grew up in South Phoenix. Yep. Um, and you said that, uh, that mom's decision to, to move the family out to Queen Creek was driven uh, at least in part to, uh, to some of your friends getting in, in tr- into trouble or getting yep. shot. Um, to, to speak more on that. Would would you have gone down the same path? Do you think had you not had the change in scenery? No, I don't think I would have. I have uh, I have an uncle that just got out after his last stint was twenty seven and a half years. I think almost twenty eight years. He had a, a twenty five to life sentence, and he did like twenty seven, twenty eight on that. So I had, and he was a long time guy. He was a low number guy. So he. Um, he had some pool on the yard. Um, I had a cousin who was a patched member of the Hells Angels. Um, I have a couple other cousins that had got in some trouble. So trouble was on, it was there, right? And it was it was to be gotten into. I have a couple family members that are cops too. So we kind of went. Thanksgiving was real interesting at your house, oh, wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> dude. Yeah, it's, uh, it's family reunions were interesting. Uh, but the thing is, like, it's family. So, you know they get in trouble and stuff. And even the dude that was a hell's angels, you know, it's, it's whatever dude, you know, that's their choice. And, um, I think growing up down there kind of helped me have the perspective of, uh, it's like, it doesn't make them inhuman to be bad guys, right? There's, they're still human beings. Cause I have family members who are bad guys, but for me personally, yes, because I had probably five core dudes that I hung out with that I grew up with. Um, I was in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. There was there was me, and I remember one other white kid when I was younger, but he moved away. And uh, there was a few a uh, few black guys and mostly Hispanics. And uh, I lived in a gang neighborhood. Our the gang down there was Happy Homes that ran our neighborhood when I was growing up. And then some of my buddies that I grew up with got into what is now Southside Posse. They were some of the originating members of that gang, which became a a blood gang down in South Phoenix. And so it's funny when you talk to people about this, because they, like, it was normal for me, but I guess it wasn't normal, right? Because I, I think I got shot at for the first time when I was 11 or 12, um, which I have a 12 year old boy now. And so it, it really puts it in perspective, like, holy shit, that was, I was really young, but it didn't seem young at the time because, you know, you're just, you're living life. But uh, growing up down there, I remember Phoenix PD rolling in, um, their gang cops would roll in and we'd be playing soccer or stickball or whatever in the street. We'd have to get on our knees. We'd have to cross our ankles, hands on your head. They'd search you real quick and then they'd start kind of talking to you and doing what they do and debriefing you. Um, and then there was some, some motors that would always work South Mountain Avenue 
and I would go over and, and BS with them when they'd be running radar on South Mountain Avenue. And, and so I always had kind of a draw to cops because I was always treated well by cops down there. Um, even though, like, I can't, I don't know, I don't know how to explain this, but, um, they were cool with us, I guess. So they would jack us up. They'd get us on our knees. Um, I watched my uncle get in a fight with cops, you know, right in front of me. My uncle actually shot Phoenix PD detectives and he was shot by them. Um, so I watched a lot of that kind of stuff go on, but I still had kind of a respect for the cops because they were always really cool with us. And I mean, there was a couple times as a teenager and hopefully my mom won't listen to this, but there's a couple <laughs> times as a teenager where earmuffs mom, I was caught with alcohol by Phoenix PD and they did the whole pour that shit out and go home right. and, you know, kind of cut you some slack and, and let you go on your way instead of just hammering you for everything they could. Um, so it was an interesting area to grow up in and be exposed to and you really you learn a lot because i learned a lot about gangs i mean you're growing up in it you you know a lot about gangs um and i learned a lot about like the dope game and um watching guys coming in and out of prison and kind of the mexican mafia touch to it uh so it was a a pretty good education for becoming a cop because sure. once i got into this field I, I think I had a little bit of an advantage because I knew the street game a lot more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at, you know, where you grew up and the things that you learned. I grew up in fucking North Scottsdale. <laughs> like my education is either stuff that I've learned since coming out of the academy mm -hmm. um, or, or it's just through academia because I just I just didn't have that right. growing up. And it, I would say it's important to recognize, recognize and remember where you came from right. and see the advantages and the disadvantages. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, you can, you can move in multiple circles. Um, well, and it really helped undercover wise because I was not uncomfortable around right bad guys um, because I had family members who were them. Um, I had grown up around some. And so like going into random houses in South Phoenix was no thing because you know, it's whatever. It's just people. Um, and I think that gave me an advantage as well because I didn't look at them differently. I just looked at them as whatever. And, and uh, I've always had kind of a, and it's been my mom's doing, she pounded it into my head that uh, uh, basically God has our plan and you're not going to override that plan or control that plan. And so that helped me in the sense that I've always been okay with death because I know that like my death date's already been chosen. Sure. And so I don't live life afraid to die. And so that helped as well. Cause like even going on motors, you know, um, there's a lot of dudes that get freaked out by, um, by the motors or by doing undercover work because it's, it's a little dangerous, uh, a little more dangerous than normal stuff. But I always just didn't give a shit because I figured, my time is set and you know, when it's my time to go, I'm going to go whether I'm riding a motorcycle or I'm getting shot or I choke on a chip or whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly, a an interesting move. Now, when you moved out to Queen Creek, what, what year was that? That would have been, I think it was 87. It was 87. There, so yeah. a lot, if you're listening to this show and you're from Arizona, you probably more or less can picture Queen, Queen Creek's just a, it's a growing city now. Right. They're getting way their own different. police department way yeah. different. Um, if you're not from Arizona, your only exposure to Queen Creek would have been the uh, the, the representation in uh, what the hell was the the movie? Um, oh man, can't even think of it. With 
they ended up dealing with the cartels. Uh, oh, Sicario? The Sicario. Or, yeah. and, and they say Queen Creek, and it's like there's a drainage culvert and like four <laughs> trailers. Yeah. And I was like, that's Queen Creek, probably in the 80s. Yeah, you know, tumbleweed yeah. rolling across. Yeah. Uh, the 80s, know. there was one stop sign in downtown, and there was a Circle K and uh, a bar, and I think one little Mexican food restaurant, and that was about it. It was it was nothing in all farms. And so that was a big shock moving from fifth sure. largest city to uh, a little farm town like that. But it was really cool because um, not only did I break away and you're talking, I'm when we moved out to Queen Creek, I was probably an hour ish from where I had grown up. Um, so I had a pretty clean break away from all those influences um, and when I got out to Queen Creek, it being a farming community, it was a small town farming community. Uh, sports was a big thing. Um, you know, Friday night lights was kind of a right. like big deal. Um, so that became my outlet. So I started playing all the sports and, uh, you know, doing all that stuff and focusing on good things rather than, you know, the stuff that was going on over in Phoenix. Um, so for sure, I think it saved me and, uh, got me or kept me on the right path. Cause I hadn't made any huge mistakes in Phoenix. I just had buddies that were, were affiliated. Um, and what people don't understand is when you grow up with dudes, um, like one of my best buds was a, was had gang affiliation and, uh, but he was my friend, you know? So the gang affiliation didn't really matter to me. That was just my buddy that I grew up with. We played soccer with, I ate at his house. He ate at my house, but I got jumped at least twice in different spots just because he was my friend. So right. you're associated with whatever gang they're associated with just because they're your friends, even though you're not affiliated, I'm not banging, I'm not claiming, I'm not doing any of that stuff. Um, you still get affiliated. And I think that's how you end up getting in trouble because eventually you get caught up in some shit because there's so much going on. So it was nice to break away after my freshman year, sophomore year started in Queen Creek and uh, just, went on a whole different path. So no doubt I would have probably been in some trouble and not been sitting in front of you had my mom not right. moved us out. Yet. Right. Well, thanks mom. I appreciate that from, <laughs> yeah, uh, from all too. of us at the yeah. blue line millennial podcast. <laughs> um, what, uh, what inspired your move into law enforcement? I know you'd said you, it's funny. You talked about always talking to the, you know, shooting the shit with the motors when they're out there running right. radar. My, I think my earliest memory of ever encountering, uh, uh, police officers. My sister went to a Catholic high school in California. So my mom would always take me, you know, I was, I don't think I was even school age at that time. Uh, my mom would always take me to go and, and pick her up, but I can remember being probably five or six years old, walking up to these two motors running <laughs> radar in, in the school zone. Um, and, and they would let me use the radar gun and, yeah. and show me the motorcycles. Uh, uh, my wife wants me nowhere near a motorcycle <laughs> right now. Um, but, uh, but what, was there, was there a, a light bulb moment or was there just sort of a, yeah, well, this is what I was always going to do. I, yeah. I don't, I don't think there was a light bulb moment. I just, uh, I, I had always been drawn to it. And, and when I got to the end of high school, I was really just kind of sitting there floating along, like what the hell am I going to, what am I going to do? And I was working at a small uh, chemical plant there in Queen Creek that made soaps and stuff like that. And it was just a whatever job. And, uh, I thought like, I need to do something right. I need to get off my ass and, and get going. And uh, I was drawn to law enforcement. I think one of the draws actually for me was that it, it was just a constant steady thing. It was a solid job. I knew I wouldn't get rich, but it was always there. 
and I knew you had a retirement. So it had an, there was an end game too. Um, so that's when I just started looking. And uh, again, I was about 19. And then um, my wife and I were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And um, we had an unexpected pregnancy. And uh, my mom basically pulled me in and said, okay, um, this is where you become a man and you make man choices. And so you have to, you know, kind of get with it. And that was another driving factor. So I had my first daughter when I was 19, my wife was 20. And again, thinking I've got to have a stable platform for a family here. And, and, uh, there, I knew there was stability in the government work. Um, and so I got into the, the uh, jail side of it and knew quickly, I don't want to stay there. I want to get out into the field. I don't want to do 20 years in the jail and, uh, then made the choice to go out to the road and that was it, man. Yeah. Um, when uh, you go through academy, you hit the road. Um, how long was your FTO process? Oh, let's see. My FTO would have been, I think I was either six or eight weeks at that point. It felt like a year, but I think it was eight weeks. And uh, I had two different FTOs. I had one FTO for the first half, and then I switched, had a second FTO for the second half. Um and it wasn't super structured. Um, there was a little bit of structure, like you had to take some certain calls, you know, you had to get dead body or whatever. Right, right. Um, so there was a few calls that you had to get. Um, but other than that, it was just a, you know, show up. And my first FTO was a complete asshole. And uh, we almost got into a fight. Um, my second FTO was like the coolest dude ever. And uh, we had a lot of, we're still friends to this day. We had a lot of fun and, and uh, he taught me a lot. And as a deputy, I know, you know, having done this job for 27 years, I know a lot of city cops and I know some state dudes. Um, and I think as a deputy, I had a distinct advantage as a street cop because we did more than your city cops would do because city cops handed off a lot of stuff. So they would get whatever and they would hand it off to a detective or a motor or, you know, whatever. Um, and we didn't have that luxury. We, we did everything. So everything that came across as a call was our call to take. And there were times as a brand new deputy that it was me from 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning. We would have no supervision. There would be no night shift commander, no nothing. You're making your own calls. Right. And, and uh, that can be cool sometimes and it can suck sometimes, you know. Um, and so you get a lot of experience very quickly because you're having to make decisions on your own and you don't have a sergeant there to guide you through it until the next day when they just come in to clean up your mess. Right. Well, and, and, and that's, I mean, going off of that, we joke, cause I am a city cop and we joke, uh, you know, Oh yeah, your deputies out there, you know, in the shit. And it's that, the, that meme of, uh, of Johnny Depp and pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> you know, where's your backup? I've got a jar of dirt. And then it's like, <laughs> so meanwhile, city cops on a, a, uh, expired registration license plate. There's four of us on one traffic stop right. because we're falling over each other. Not lately. Staffing has been a real pain in the ass, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, every now and then it does seem you look over and you're like, what? We're good, bro. Like, why, why are you doing? Why are you here? There, there's. I've got. I'm fine with one backup officer, right. maybe two, depending on how many people are in the car. But I don't need like 17 people on my traffic. Well, stop. you know what's funny is when deputies switch over to cities. When you have a deputy that goes city cop, they just do shit and they get in trouble for it. People right. are like, "Hey, man, you can't do that on your own." I'm like, why not? <laughs> like, we always do. No, you have to wait for so and so, or you have to wait for this many cops, or whatever. And like, 
Okay, okay, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We are we are jealous that you guys get to get into pursuits, though. We don't get to do that. So uh, yeah, we uh, we do chase some people. Yeah, and and you know, uh, I'll tell you, chasing cartels was the funnest thing for me because we did some shit out there that uh, when I tell some of the stories to people, they're like, "What?" And I mean, those were the coolest pursuits. When you're completely blacked out on a freeway, going you know a hundred ish miles an hour, driving with NVGs on chasing another blacked out vehicle that's full of bad guys and AKs that makes for a good chase. Yeah. Well, and I mean, so let's kind of dive into that a little bit. It, starting out in Pinal County, I mean, now Pinal County's got it's got growth coming north from Tucson, mm-hmm. south from Phoenix, Maricopa, the city of Maricopa is developing into its own, you metropolis, know, yeah. uh, metropolis. Uh Casa Grande is, is continuing to grow and and I would say has been doing so for quite some time. But uh but what did it, what did it look like when you first start? Like, what were the issues that you were facing then versus now? You do have human trafficking and narcotics trafficking. So it was it was present back then, but not to the scale that it is now. But our issues back then. So when I started, I started in Apache Junction, and uh, up there it was DV, it was meth. The bikers controlled the meth. We had the dirty dozen that ran the state. Um, that was before they patched over. So. The dirty dozen were running the meth trade and it was the old peanut butter meth or the dirty meth you know that was the the, the old biker meth um so we had meth houses we had meth trailers we had meth hotels where they were making the shit. um so meth labs were kind of a big thing um the meth being distributed by the bikers was a big thing and then of course you know like dv and all that shit's always the same it's always there um but that was some of the big stuff with drugs and then down south we still had the the Mexican crews were running the dope and running the bodies, but the bodies weren't uh, like in the beginning in the nineties, uh, the, the running of bodies was different. Like they would just kind of come up in small groups here and there. There was no big thing. The cartels didn't really mess with them so much. They were more running the dope and stuff. And the dope they were running was really the bigger loads of marijuana and, um, the, all the hard stuff back then was mainly cocaine and heroin a little bit. Um, but cocaine was like the big thing. And if you remember back then too, the Colombians were still involved. So right. I was going to say your were, Coke's still coming up from South right, America. Right. So the Mexicans are just transporters at that point. They were growing a lot of the weed and, and doing the weed stuff, but the cocaine, they were just transporting. They didn't have control of. Um, and so it was a lot different back then. Um, and you didn't see the amounts, um, like for us, the heydays were, uh, 2010, 2011, around that era, probably 2000, 2007, eight, uh, into 2011, 12 was like the wild west out there where the Sinaloans were just running massive amounts of, uh, marijuana. Uh, they had taken over the meth trade by then. So they were starting to run big loads of meth. Uh, they were still running Coke. Um, and now we've kind of transferred into heroin and, uh, fentanyl, uh, fentanyl as our, uh, our big problems. Um, so back then still had, it just wasn't as big of a problem. Like back then, if you got 150 pounds, you were a rock star. Like that was a super big load. And in our heyday in like 2010, if you got 150 pounds, it was hardly worth processing because, right. you know, you were getting two and 3000 pound loads, um, would be the big loads. Um, so they were there, but the county was really unpopulated back then comparatively. Casa Grande was still um, one of our larger cities in the county then. 
Uh, Maricopa wasn't even a thing. I mean, it was just a small town, kind of like Queen Creek. It had like one stop sign right. and a bar. And the railroad track went through, and that was about the end of it. Yeah, yeah. that was it. Um, you had a lot of orchards and stuff out there, so there was citrus farming and that kind of stuff going on. And uh, AJ was one of our bigger towns. Apache Junction was one of our bigger towns. And again, that's where we had the bikers, the Dirty Dozen, who eventually patched over to Hell's Angels. Um, they were up there, and, and they were pretty prevalent. Um, and then we had all of our mining towns on the east that were all small towns. So you didn't really have a lot. And then as we moved into the 2000s, um, you saw Santan Valley plop in. Mm-hmm. And so Santan Valley just kind of blew up and became this thing. And then shit by 2010, it was, you know, its own little unincorporated city. And so we still, I think we're still number one. I, th- I think we're still the largest unincorporated town in America with a population of about 125,000 that's serviced by our agency. They don't have their, they're not their own city. Um, so we have that whole phenomenon because um, what that causes for us is we have a group of deputies. There's 44 there that are essentially city cops because that's a city. Um, so policing there is different than policing out like in the Southwest portion of our County that's still kind of rural. Um, so we have a lot of diversity and then you have those pockets like you talked about now, Maricopa, where it's become its own little metropolis. And then Casa Grande is becoming bigger and bigger. Um, and you can see the growth where these cities are starting to merge together. So you can tell that we're headed towards, and I think they, they're guesstimating like the 2030 timeframe where a lot of these cities are going to be touching each other and you're going to start to look like the Phoenix Mesa, Tempe, Chandler, you know, that, those kind of cities. You can drive an hour and never leave a city. Right. Uh, right. Or, or at least the, you know, you're, you're transitioning between city to city, Yeah, but you know, I can drive from Mesa to Goodyear and, and never (laughs) see an open field. Right. Right. So, yeah. So we're, we're getting to that point. We still have a, a lot of filling in to do because we're not even at the uh, 500,000 mark yet. The census, I think we're going to finally be over, which will be great because it opens up UASI funding. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, federal government, I'd like this grant now, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what uh, we're, I mean, kind of jumping back and forth, what led, uh, led you to, to go from patrol and motors uh you were doing you know with with motors you had your interdiction stuff that you were working on uh and then you ended up spending was it 14 years on SWAT uh 18 18 years 18 years on SWAT um is it a your SWAT team down there is is it or was it at the time is it a full-time team or is it you hold you hold you know your primary role is patrol or motors or detective and then you also function as a SWAT yeah they're collateral duty so they have their primary function whatever that is detective patrol whatever and then it's just a collateral duty when they get called out or or when they have their training and stuff um so the only full-time position is our commander our team commander uh he holds a full-time position everybody else is is part-time um and kind of like what what caused me to bounce from position to position um is Honestly, like I have ADHD, so I get bored real easy. It, it, when I get into a job, like within probably three to four, some of them five years, uh, I, f- I start getting bored because like when I dive into a job, I like completely dive in. And so I'll go all in and I'll learn as much as I can, take as many classes as I can, do as many cases as I can, just try and get as much experience as I can. And 
that causes kind of a baptism by fire. So within three or four years, I'm pretty confident in that position, mm-hmm. in my skills in that position. Then I'm like, shit, now I what? need something new. Yeah, I need a new challenge. And so um, that's what caused me to kind of bounce around to different things. Um, the academy thing, like when I got offered the academy, uh, I was our training sergeant and the academy director called me up and said, hey, we need an interim um, for probably six months, maybe a year. And I'd like you to take that. And I was like, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm good. Like I have a job. And he says, well, I'm not really asking. Like I already called the sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> sheriff said you could come over. And I was like, okay. More calling you telling you when to start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that ended up being cool though, because it gave me a different experience on, on, uh, just budgeting and some of that kind of stuff that as a sergeant, you normally wouldn't get exposed to. Um, so I got exposed to some pretty cool things. I was dealing with heads of agencies as a, as the academy director, essentially, um, and so it gave me some, some really cool exposure. Uh, and so there were some of those jobs that I didn't ask for and I just kind of got, um, due to my reputation of, of really just working. Um, and then there were some jobs that I really wanted and went after like, uh, um, the narcotics sergeant position. I, you know, I went after that one with everything I had, cause I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run that unit and I wanted to, to do that kind of work. Cause as the sergeant, it's even, it's the, the best thing about that is that you can, for us at least at that time, I could pick um, cases that I wanted to work. And I did undercover work as a sergeant, so I would work cases. I would be a case-carrying detective. Um, I had CIs that I was working, and uh, I got to do some undercover work. And I like my last, uh, when I knew I was leaving and going to Motors, um, I closed down one of my meth cases, and uh, we did a buy bust. So I finished out my narc career getting arrested by our oh, old hell guys yeah. during the buy bust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when, going through those buy busts, was there, uh, you know, you get hooked. Were, were you taken to a separate patrol car and then whisked mm-hmm. away, and and the guys you were with like never saw you again until court, or how did it go? Yeah, down? and that last one is interesting, man, because that dude, um, he was a funny guy. He was an old dude, and. Uh, he was an old biker guy and his son was a cook. And so he was one off the cook. So he had some really good meth and, uh, I had been buying it from him for a few months. And, uh, when it went down, um, that one was kind of funny because I called out, I called out the code word, you know, and the bus started happening and, uh, I get on the ground cause I know what's coming. We end up getting hooked up across from each other. So I'm on my belly and, you know, I'm cuffed up behind myself by my back and, and he's laying on his belly and he's cuffed up behind his back. Well, he had brought this chick that had never come to any of our deals before. And I didn't know who she was, but, um, at some point, actually, she had started getting involved in the negotiation, um, because I was like, Hey, let's do this. And he's like, all right, but I, you know, I'm going to need a little bit more for this one because I'm a little bit heavy on it. And, and so we were kind of negotiating. And then she jumped in the negotiation and I told her, bitch, you ain't part of this. You know, get out. Of, this is man talk here. Leave. And uh, so her and I had some words and then he calmed it down. And then we do the deal and I call out the bust signal and we get busted and we're facing each other. And here's this chick over here, too. And she's under arrest. He looks at me and he goes, you're a fucking snitch. And I was like, dude, I didn't bring the bitch to this party. And he was like, oh. That's right. And so my undercover name, my undercover name's Mike. And he looked at me and he's like, oh, fuck, Mike, I'm sorry, man. She's a snitch. I'm going to kill that bitch. And I'm like, no, 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 dude, don't do that either. Don't do that either. Shit. Back, reverse, back up, rewind. Right. So I learned a little undercover lesson there, not to say shit like that to get uh, other people beat up. Uh, But he and I, we get whisked off our separate ways. 
And he was being kind of a knucklehead with our detectives. He was, wasn't admitting anything. Right. And so I went in to talk to him and, uh, I have my badge around my neck and I go in and he's like, dude, did, did they make you come in here? And I was like, no, dude, like I'm a cop. And he's like, come on, Mike, quit fucking around. Like, did they, are they making you do this? So I'll talk. I'm like, no, dude, like I'm a cop, man. And the gig is up, bro. Like you, you've been selling dope to a cop. So just tell them what you need to tell them, you know? And uh, we went back and forth and he did not believe that I was, he's like, no, dude, seriously, are they, you're fucking around, right? And I'm like, no. So I pull out my ID and I'm like, bro, I'm a cop. And he's like, oh man. I thought you were my friend. And I was like, ah, oh, dude, don't break Come my heart, on, man. That's, that, <laughs> that's kind of, and, and, and the funny part is, like I said, he, he was this cool old dude that reminded me of one of my uncles. And I did like the guy because he's just a likable dude. And I felt so bad because I was like, well, no, I'm not really your friend, bro. Like I was just playing the part. And I think that broke his heart more than anything. Yeah. I don't think he gave a shit about the charges. He was more concerned that we weren't friends. He's still in prison scratching your name with a heart on the wall somewhere, man. <laughs> no, he died oh, in prison. Well. <laughs> well, now I'm the asshole. So. It's all good. He was uh, a meth dealer, bro. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. You look at it both ways. You're like, no, oh, kind, of, kind of an oxygen thief. But uh, Did you ever have any uh, like direct interactions with cartel members? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 We... Uh, there's a rumor down in Nogales um, uh, about this dude from ICE that was me, and I'm not from ICE. <laughs> but uh, we, we did some stuff down there with Nogales. So Nogales, and, and actually Chandler PD too. So us, Chandler, and Nogales at the time um, would all work with each other um, and trade off work. And so we would go do work down in Nogales. And when we were working down in Nogales, we were dealing pretty direct with a lot of the cartel members. And then... Um, Working out in our western part of our county, there was some direct interdiction work against cartel members, uh, what would be captain and lieutenant level cartel members on this side of the line, uh, doing direct work against them, um, taking off some of their houses, taking off some of the stash houses, taking them off on on uh, stops and wires because we did some wires on those guys. And um, we had a lot of direct interaction with everything from the line level cartel all the way up to probably captain level guys. Uh, on on our side and and you know that you're dealing with heavy hitters when they're in songs right so some of the dudes that we were chasing and arresting and stuff they had songs written about them and and uh they were in some of the corridos and so those dudes were they're interesting though because they're they're very business oriented and and uh very um i don't even know how to explain it it's it's almost it's almost like a, a gentleman's rule, you know? So when you get to that level of cartel, um, they have they have certain rules and they have certain standards that they go by. And, and so um, I think they have a better understanding that it's a game, right? And uh, it's all part of the game. When they get busted, it's all part of the game. Right. Um, and so dealing with the heavy hitters was a little bit uh, less... Uh, I guess violent than dealing with some of the the low level guys because the low level guys trying to make a name for themselves or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so it was it was cool. And uh, I've actually on the sheriff's advice, I've started writing down some of these stories and putting them to paper. And I, I have a couple friends that have written books that are trying to guide me along because I'm trying to get this stuff on paper before I end up getting killed or die or whatever. Um, so I can kind of memorialize it uh, because 
people, when you start telling stories about the stuff you did out there, people are like, no way that happens. And you're like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Every day. All the time. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't think it's a big deal because you're in the mix of it. But when you talk to other people about it that have not experienced it or seen it, it is a big deal um, to them. And they, they have no clue because uh, I, th- I think one thing that people don't understand about this whole game is that uh, this whole world in front of us is all camouflage, right? And there's a huge show going on behind the curtains that nobody sees. And every once in a while we get to peek into it. Well, a lot of times we get to peek into it. Um, and we have an understanding of all the shit going on behind the scenes. Um, and it's weird because for us it's normal and you don't, so if you and I are talking about it, we're like, yeah, of course you did that. Yeah, right. Of course you saw that. Um, but to normal people, they're just like, they're blown away and they have no idea that there's this shit going on right, right in front of them. Yeah. The one thing that I tell people is that our, our realities are extremely different. Yeah. What, what they see is, is no less real in their day to day. You know, they're, yeah, I wake up, I have my coffee, I drive to work, I work on TPS reports, I drive home. That is real to them. But, but what's real to me uh, and what's real to you and every other cop in this co- ambulance, EMT technician, uh, you know, the the fire medics, like, no, this, this, like, this shit happens, man. Right. Um, it, it, it's out there. It's a violent, ugly world. It's a world. very <laughs> violent, ugly world. But I, and I, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, uh, you said you deal with the heavy hitters. Um you know, they understand the score. And I would think I was just talking to my wife that every now and then, you know, and, and I don't even, the area that I work uh, in the city that I work for, it, it's an upper middle class area, like no, no two ways about it. Right. Um, uh, the area just north of that, though, slightly different story. That's that's where your your gangs are focused and whatnot. And every now and then you'll catch somebody and you can tell if they've been in the game for a long time yeah. or if they're like they're they're puffing their chest out and, and showing their feathers off because it's it's yap, 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 yap. If they're trying to trying to make a name for themselves or it's, hey, I get it, dude. Like, I'm not going to fucking talk to you. Right. But I I get it. Like, I, I know I'm under arrest. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to spit on you. I'm not going to do this, that and the other thing. Give me 10 of those guys over 10 tweakers any day of the week, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I just, I don't know if you saw it on the Instagram story, but we had those tweakers we arrested. Uh, Sorry, maybe tweakers isn't a nice word. (laughs) I'm not actually that sorry, but uh, I don't know what it is about this particular. It's our West Precinct. Okay. Anytime I work there and I arrest somebody, there's always some sort of sex toy that comes out of their pocket <laughs> or their backpack. And I don't know if that it's is me. a tweaker thing. It's dude. a tweaker thing. I don't know if it's just me or if it's just the, the clientele, man, but yeah, uh, it's a clientele. Um, <laughs> the, uh, your UC days, uh, I think, uh, you've got an Instagram photo, uh, and just that flowing blonde <laughs> surfer hair and you yeah. call it your psycho surfer days. Um, uh, what, I mean, were there any other times where you were like, Oh shit, like, I'm about to get made on this or like you've got a patrol, a patrol deputy rolling up on you and you're like, go away, go away. Like get the fuck out of here. Go away. There, there was a couple times where I was in the middle of deals. Um, but more so than that, uh, because typically speaking, the, the cops are pretty perceptive. So uniforms, if they know who you are, um, and you don't acknowledge them, typically speaking, they won't, you know, they won't come up to you. Um, more so than that was was running into bad guys with my family and so um i had a plan early on when i especially when i was doing undercover work um and i was doing direct deals with guys um there was a couple times over my wife and i with our our two kids at the time would walk in to a store and i would instantly see one of my bad guys um and so the plan was and it always carried through 
that I would immediately stop talking to my wife, act like I didn't know her, walk a separate direction. She would leave the store and she would pick me up around the backside or whatever. So we had kind of an exfil strategy. Um, and that was more uh, nerve wracking than the undercover work and being made by a cop because I always had a, you know, a backup plan in my mind. If sure. the cop came up and talked to me, well, it's because, you know, fucking whatever. He was at my house for a stolen gun or, you know, what I, I, I would make some shit up and I knew I could work with that. But running into people with the family would not work out. Yeah. Yeah. No. And there's, there's gotta be a, uh, I mean, you're, you're making diamonds at that point. It's gotta be kind of a pucker factor. Maybe yeah. first, first or every time that it happens to you. I think I've only ever run into to one person I've arrested. Again, I've never done UC, none of that stuff, just patrol work, but uh, at a grocery store. And he was so, it was, I had just gotten off a graveyard shift. So it's like seven, seven thirty ish in the morning. And, uh, he was being shitty with the cashier right in front of him. as soon as he turned around and we made eye contact and I'm like, not this motherfucker again. Like, dude, I don't, I don't live where I work on purpose. Right. He was so fucked up on whatever. He had no idea who I was. Right. And I mean, again, you know, not wearing a dark Navy blue patrol uniform yeah, and helps, you know, a little helps a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, so to give people an idea of, uh, of how Pinal County works, um, or, or rather geographically speaking, because some people may look at Pinal County and see that, well, it's, oh, it's not on the border. And they may look at, you know, <laughs> Sheriff Lamb's social media or, or, I mean, he's been on the news uh, right. or, or your own, your own, you know, your own statements about uh, border security and the operations that you've done. And yeah, sure. Pima County is just South of that, but right. it's a direct corridor for narcotics trafficking. Yeah. If, uh, if you, so what you have to do is you have to look at, we are not a border County, but, uh, we are actually because of the volume of traffic and because of the, the, how, how the, the land is and the, the mountains are and that terrain down there is, um, we are actually a, um, oh God, I lost it. Tier one County. So tier one counties are typically border counties. And as it relates to federal funding for stone garden, um, we got bumped into that category. So we get the funding as if we are a border county, even though we don't butt up against the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's because of the volume of traffic in our county. And the volume of traffic in our county happens because if you go straight south of us, 70 miles, you'll run into the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but it's in between POE. So it's in between the point of entry of Nogales and the point of entry over by uh, Sasabi and Lukeville. Um, and so it's all that open desert in between. And so there's places where there is only strands of wire across the border. Right. Um, so they could essentially just go through a, uh, a barbed wire fence and be in the U.S. And then there's other areas where there's vehicle barriers. And then there's some areas where there's some fencing or some Normandy style barriers. Um, but anyways, so they come straight up from there. So they use those, that open desert in between the two POEs and that's where they cross. And it's also the Tohono O'odham uh, Indian reservation, which crosses into Mexico. So it's on the Mexican side and the U S side. So it's all reservation and desert as they travel 70 miles North. And then uh, the way the mountains are structured, it kind of funnels them. So they head kind of North first and then they start to head because of the mountain ranges on each side, it funnels them towards our county right into the southwest portion of the county. So 
they travel those valleys in between the mountain ranges and they end up right at the southwest corner of our county and right at right at or near the I-10, I-8 interchange where the I-8 starts and heads towards San Diego um, or ends if you're coming from San Diego. Uh, and then I-8 becomes a goal line because north of I-8 is where you start to see um, housing developments and stuff in the Casa Grande area, um, over in the Stanfield area, in the Maricopa area. So uh, they travel all that open desert, which then makes the border more like I-8 because that's where they're actually hitting their first civilization. Now, if you looked at the point of entries like Nogales, of course, right when they cross into Nogales on the U.S. side, uh, they're in housing developments. They right. have regular routes, all that kind of stuff. They have I-10, I-19. Um, but uh, under our county or directly south of our county, it's all open desert. It's all dirt roads. Um, it's some Indian routes, which are just uh, two-lane paved highways. And uh, that's all they're traveling to get up to us. And so they hit their first civilization. And it makes our that area of our county a key piece for them because that's where the stash houses are. Um, that's where they uh, take the big loads, break them down into smaller loads, distribute them into the Phoenix area, um, and they do a lot of their operations out of there. And then those desert areas, that's where the scouts are in the hills and um, they're monitoring, they're reporting, they are. So if it's a backpack load, the backpackers will be in contact with the scouts in the hills and they'll move their way up and, and the scouts are there to help them not get ripped off by rip crews or not get intercepted by law enforcement. So it's this whole coordinated effort down there in the desert. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, the, the stories that I've heard is it's damn near some sort of military operation Yeah, with, uh, with those guys and, and the, the scouts that are up in the hills with binoculars or, or spotting scopes or what have you. And it's, I mean, it's a, a walkie-talkie, right? Two-way radios, just like we use in there. Yep. I mean, they're waiting for the the black and white Pinal County pickup truck to drive past, or they're waiting for the, the highway patrol car to, to go the other way. Yeah. Um, or the uh, the you know, as you said, the the rib crews are they coming up? It, is it? I mean, your human trafficking is that largely on foot, or are they getting put in vehicles? And it's uh, more on foot than it used to be. You, we used to have, uh, like back in the 07, 08 days, um, they had what they call French fried loads, which would be really like an F-150, and it would have 30 people standing in the back, and they would be northbound from Mexico all the way up into our county like that. So they would they would basically just stack all these people in the back of the truck and they would roll northbound till they got up into our county and then they would hit a stash house and then they would kind of redistribute them from there. Um, now it's more walkers and walkers walking five or six days up. Um, sometimes they'll walk three or four days and get into Indian villages and stage there and then get picked up by vehicles and brought further north. Sometimes they'll walk all the way up into our county, which is a, it's about a six day walk for them if they're um if they're not pushing too hard um and then they'll get picked up at stash houses there and and pushed up there's not a lot of transports all the way from mexico up right well i imagine that you know it's they understand that they're probably stand a higher chance of getting intercepted at the poe at the point of entries uh or or by law enforcement but if you're out there wandering through the desert right you're probably a lot harder to find. I mean, you can only deploy so many helicopters and, you know, so many infrared camera systems right. and, and it's just so many people, right? Yeah. So many law enforcement. Uh, it's officers. a needle in a haystack out exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're looking through 
thousands of square miles of open desert right um for a human right and, and even when we would do our interdiction operations on on backpackers who were backpacking dope it's the same thing you're it's a needle in a haystack search so you end up um you have to use intelligence obviously so so and then sometimes you'll have you know uh, ci's or you'll have snitches in the organization that'll give up routes and or give up pickup points or you know so you're doing a lot of traditional type of cop work to try and figure out how they're doing what they're doing and then you go and you set up intercept points and that's a lot of what we were doing um in the heyday was was really setting up intercept points we would we would set up with uh different technology in areas that we knew they were working and and um then we would work with border patrol and border patrol has a lot of access to a lot of technology i mean they have signet technology so they would know where the radios were when they were operating sometimes uh that kind of stuff and and we would base stuff off of signal intelligence um but they it is a military operation it's it can be rudimentary on the mexican side so for the cartels some of that stuff is very rudimentary but it's very effective um their scouts are usually pretty well outfitted they're 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 uh, using the uhf they even use digital radio systems now like uh, Kenwood's, Motorola's, that kind of stuff. Then they're just like the cop radios. They have their own repeater systems that they put up. Uh, they put up solar panels with um, uh, car batteries to use those as essentially trickle charges. And then they use the batteries to charge up all of their electronic batteries for their cell phones, uh, for their radios and all that stuff so that they can stay up on the mountaintops for weeks at a time. Um, they have their own resupply system for the scouts. So you have a group that their sole function in life is to get supplies to the scouts, water, food, uh, batteries, any of the stuff that they need. Um, so it's logistically, they have quite the network sure. set up to do their job. And then, so you have to counter that. And the difficult thing about countering it is, uh, what do you focus on, right? Because there's so many aspects of it. You can focus on going after the dope. You can focus on going after the scouts. You can focus on going after the resupply for the scouts. You can focus on the vehicle crews that are taking stolen vehicles down to run the dope north. I, there's just so many aspects to go after when you're going after that large of an organization. Yeah, that was uh, that was an education that I had to get in 2018 when I was on Graves. Is we kept having stolen vehicle after stolen vehicle after stolen vehicle. we were i mean try to stop them i nearly got run over that was me being more stupid you know at the time you don't know what you don't know or you, right. you think that you're bulletproof as a brand new police officer um nearly getting run over by this f-250 quad cab yep. <laughs> um and uh i remember talking to one of our auto uh, theft detectives and he was like well no what this particular crew does is they run resupplies for the narcotics trafficking mm -hmm. and they romp this shit through the desert that's why it's they're not out there stealing Nissan Altimas, right? They're stealing right. trucks that they can, trucks and Jeeps that can handle the terrain. And then, uh, you know, after a few resupplies, then that's why we find the frames torched in the desert. Yep. You know, that was always a uh, not so fun phone call to make to these poor people. Hey, we, look, uh, so-and-so agency found your vehicle, but before you get too excited, yeah. uh, it was torched in the desert. Oh, and they took the speakers out of it mm -hmm. before they torched it and the seats and the wheels. It's yeah. just a frame. And a lot of times, even when they wouldn't torch them, they would just run them so hard that they would be totaled. We, we had so many of those trucks that were completely totaled by the time we recovered them and they would drive them just until they quit. Right. And, and uh, it did give you a good education. Cause I was like, okay, note to self, don't buy that truck. Cause it, right. broke, down quickly. <laughs> it broke down that one. That one can't handle it. This yeah. one though, this one did pretty good. They, they must've put at least a thousand miles on this right. one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back in, uh, back in our heyday, the avalanche, you would hear them on the radios, avalanche, avalanche. 
They love those avalanches, man. They would run the hell out of those things. You know, I never once considered buying an avalanche. No <laughs> offense to Chevrolet, but just, ugh, you know, I think it's a gross looking vehicle. Well, it can hold about 1,800 pounds. So it's well, a- hey, there you go. look, if you're in the narcotics game, <laughs> Chevy Avalanche is a, is a decent vehicle. And you can find them used at your local dealership. Um, when you were uh, uh, on SWAT, did you ever have any, any operations where, you know, you and your team are... You'd mentioned, you know, you're doing high, you know, high speed pursuits with night vision goggles on, uh, which I am curious about that story as well. <laughs> but um, were there ever times where you guys are just out there almost again, almost like a military op where you're going to patrol through the desert to a certain point in the middle of the night, just under night vision? Yeah. Yeah. We did that quite a bit, actually. Um, again, back in the heyday in the, the 2010, 11 uh, time frame, we were doing quite a bit of that where we would... Uh, we would be mobile in vehicles and we would have to sneak into areas. So we would be blacked out in vehicles um, and you would get basically inserted into areas in the desert. And then you would have to maneuver on foot to locations. If you were, if your assignment was an LPOP, you would have to maneuver to your LPOP, which would be a predetermined location. So you'd be operating off a of GPS and doing land nav, just like you would, you know, anything else. So you would have your point that you would have to get to, you would be dropped. And, and sometimes it was a small crew, maybe two or three dudes. Sometimes it would be a bigger crew if you were going out there to do intercepts. Um, and you would move into your spots, um, get set up and, um, you know, get ready for whatever you were doing that night and then just kind of hang out. So you'd be out in the middle of the desert and really your only backup you're typically you were about 30 minutes uh from anybody really getting to you for help um if if it was a a good night um there were some times where we were we were probably an hour from any backup and uh and border patrol was with us a lot of time doing the same stuff um their bortac team uh, especially their national team came down from texas and we did a lot of work with those guys and we did a lot of that stuff where we would be you would move in to an LPOP and you would be in an LPOP for two days. So you would be on station out in the middle of the desert for two days, just kind of living there and, uh, you know, essentially doing exactly what the scouts were doing. We were just counter scouting, um, those guys and, uh, trying to intercept dope, trying to intercept the resupplies, trying to take off scouts if we could, trying to get their, their radio systems. And, uh, while I'm talking about their radio systems, one of the stupidest things that all the cops will appreciate this because, um, we were getting ready to do a wire, right? And we had intercepted a radio. And so we're talking to AUSAs about this wire. We're talking about just operations, all this stuff. We have a bad guy radio, which is a, it was at the time a Motorola that was a Latin based radio. They had, so meaning it had been purchased in a Latin based country. Uh, The cartels had got these radios they were so they have a latin based radio they're operating on a hijacked frequency out of texas so they're operating on an american frequency out of texas that was not their frequency to be on um and the lawyers told us we could not listen to those conversations because they were privileged oh jesus <laughs> and that we had to have a title 3 <laughs> to listen to the radio so we're like this is bullshit like so we said we 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 basically got this radio from a scout on U.S. soil, whose sole function in life is to coordinate drug loads coming north. So he's involved in illegal activities. He's using a Latin-based radio to do it on a hijacked frequency, which is also illegal, but you're telling us that that's privileged communication that we can't listen to without a Title III. And the lawyers all, 
said yes. And so, and these are not lawyers for the cartels. These no. are the people supposed to be yeah. helping us get these convictions. Are, these are government lawyers. Yeah. And so this, but what was cool about that is that got, uh, like I got to be involved in some high level conversations. Um, when you start talking to congressmen and stuff and, um, you know, they come down and they act like they care and they want to talk about something. They'll usually ask you, how can we help you? Well, I'll tell you how you can help me. It's bullshit like this that's holding us up, right? You know, so change some laws, change some rules where we can listen to these radios and use it as as evidence against these guys. And uh, we ended up actually, we had a county attorney at the time that his second in command came to me. I was a lieutenant and he said, how can we help you? And I said, prosecute scouts. That's how you can help us. And he says, well, you have to explain to me what you mean. I said, well, these, so we have scouts on a hill with a radio coordinating drug loads. When we catch them, they're not charged with anything because the AUSA won't per- prosecute them for what they're doing. And so we devised a plan to prosecute scouts, and we ended up getting the first scout prosecution in the U.S. Um, in Pinal County, and we did it stateside. We worked it. Uh, it was a joint operation with Border Patrol. Um, so us, Bortac, and their what they call their evidence recovery team all worked together, took some scouts down, bagged up all the evidence. Uh, we had to have uh, a few of us had to qualify as expert witnesses to testify as to what was going on. And we prosecuted these scouts and the first few scouts we prosecuted, um, got, uh, two and a half years for two of them. And then one of them had a gun. So he got 10. And so the minute we started putting prosecution on those guys, it changed the game because they had been just slapped on the wrist and released before. And so they just kept doing their shit. And, uh, once we started prosecuting them, it did two things. Um, A, we started taking scouts off and putting them in jail, but B, it embarrassed the shit out of the AUSA because then all of a sudden the feds were asking, how is this county prosecuting people and you guys aren't? Right. So the AUSA finally, a couple of years later, stepped up and started prosecuting scouts and now um, that particular crime. So when they're scouting, they're getting prosecuted all across the U.S. now when they're doing that function. Which and is it a violation of federal law then, or is it just... Yeah, when, okay. they're, when they're prosecuting them federally, we were prosecuting them for conspiracy. Um, okay. So when we did it stateside, it was a conspiracy charge. And some of them are doing that um, federally, and then some of them are using some of the federal laws to, to prosecute them. Oh, well, hell yeah. Good work for, uh, for Pinal County. They're leading the way a little bit. And it starts to paint a clearer picture as to why uh, why PCSO is so heavily involved with with border operations and, and counter narcotics trafficking. Right. Um, do you still see with with uh, the recent? I think it was Prop Two Hundred Eight here in in Arizona, the legalization of oh, 207, 207, yeah. uh legalization of marijuana. Do you still even see loads coming north? <laughs> no, not no, really. That's why uh, we had. We had a load, a 450-pound weed load the other day, and uh, um, my PIO came into my office, and she's like, hey, um, the the dog's just got a load on 10. And I was like, all right, what is it? And she said, it's uh, 450 pounds of marijuana. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she says, yeah, it's 450 pounds of weed. And I said, like, is it a dude from the 70s that didn't get the memo? <laughs> or like, what the fuck are they why, doing Why weed? take the chance? Now it's right. legal, you know, within the state of Arizona. It's it, we all know that federally it's not too long before right. it's going to be legalized. Why, why even, ch- I, I look at it as why even chance running. Well, dude, and north. the value is shit. I right. Mean, you know, comparatively uh, to what it was, you know, cause th- normally it, back in the day, again, back in the heyday of like the 2010 era, that's a quarter million dollar load at least. 
Um, but these days, if, I mean, I don't even know if it was worth the gas. Right. It probably wouldn't have even filled the tank up. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, why, why take the, the risk right. at, at landing yourself in so prison? So we don't, we don't see it like we used to, not the marijuana. We, um, the, the, the big loads now are meth, heroin, and uh, fentanyl, which is what, I mean, as a patrol officer on the streets, that's what I still pull off of people, right? right. I mean, we, we stopped, I don't want to say we stopped giving a shit about weed because like we'll still arrest you if you're right. driving high. But if you have, and even for the past shit, ever since I've done it, you got a little bit of weed and you're upfront about it. All right, well, fine. We're going to, uh, I mean, gone, body cameras gone are the days of like, Hey, just chuck it in the gutter. Right. Like we're going to seize it and destroy it, but you're not going to get charged with it. Well, anything. yeah. Cause the lawyers aren't going to prosecute right. it anyways. So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, for, for a roach, you know, it just doesn't make, right. make a, it's not even worth the paperwork. Right. Right. Uh, well, and even with the medical stuff, I mean, the medical gives a lot of work around. So when they passed medical, that kind of started it not being a thing anymore. And then once it went full legal, um, you know, unless they have pounds and pounds with like on that particular one, the sheriff, we were talking and he was like, cause we were all kind of like, what the hell is this guy doing with 450? Like nobody has that anymore. Right. And uh, so we were kind of making fun of it. And so uh, the sheriff, he actually decided, he goes, you know what? I'm going to make fun of it in the actual press release. And so his statement in there, they said, you know, Sheriff Lamb was asked for a statement and his statement was, dude, you can't have that much weed. <laughs> now, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> are they, uh, they are the cartels. Um, do you see more human trafficking than narcotics trafficking? Or is it about a 50, 50 split? Mm, it's no, the, the human trafficking. So, for us, the human trafficking that we typically saw is non-existent anymore um, it, because it used to be groups of people that were being brought up, brought to stash houses, and then distributed all over, right? We don't see those much at all anymore, um, if, if at all. Uh, it's mostly drug trafficking. And <clears throat> what has happened over time is the cartels have made it well known that those routes are theirs. And you have to have permission to be on those routes. And, and it's typically different groups that are running different stuff. So the cartels are running a lot of dope. Um, if they're running bodies, that's going to be a different kind of body than it used to be. So you're talking more of the sex trafficking stuff right. or children that they're moving. And um, what we see is they're moving a lot of that stuff on the highways. Um, they're not moving a lot of that stuff through the desert. And the bodies that are coming through the desert are specifically carrying dope. And then um, once they get to their goal line and drop their dope or, or hand it off to somebody, then they are getting in vehicles. So when you see on the news, if you see, you know, um, Pinal County caught a carload of illegals with eight guys in it, those are all eight backpackers that got caught after they dropped their dope. Right. They were, they were uh, coming up here, but they were doing, I mean, they were ferries, right? They were yeah. ferrying the, the narcs northbound. Right. Uh, in addition to like, hey, this is almost part of paying your way across the border, right? Yep. Um, is there still a lot of cross-border violence or has it waned? Um, <clears throat> I don't want to say cross-borders. It's really weird. They they tend to keep a lot of their, the violent part of their business south of the line. They, they don't cross it over into the U.S. too much um, that we see. There's still a little bit going on because when uh, we're a Sinaloa-controlled state, when Chapa was taken out of power, 
it created kind of a power vacuum and there's a lot of infighting in the Sinaloa cartel right now. So you have them fighting just south of the border, fighting each other. And there's groups north of the border that are fighting that same battle. Um, but you don't see it like you see it in, in Mexico. It's prolific. I mean, they're fighting in the streets. They're it's straight up firefights, right? Like fights having, every yeah, day. They're having gun battles down there. You're not going to see that on the U S side. They tend to keep it uh, down there because I think they understand that when shit like that happens on this side, it attracts a whole lot of attention and they start to get a lot of federal attention, which they don't want. Um, they don't mind the locals too much, but once the the feds start getting heavily involved and, and start coming down on them, um, then they get a little bit worried. Cause when you're talking about the DEA and the FBI and those guys, because those guys can cross borders and go do stuff on both sides. Um, it has a different effect. So I think they keep most of that down there. You'll see every once in a while, we'll get a hit or something like that. You know, somebody, um, got in trouble and, and get killed up here, but it's not firefights like you're seeing on the South side. Sure. Sure. Uh, curious from, for my own, you know, uh, interest, um, just South of here. And it, I think Gila river does mm-hmm. touch into Pinal County. Yep. Um, but, uh, for, for me, the general understanding is okay. Hey, patrol guys. And unless if you, get a break in contact of a vehicle that you're following for whatever, you know, shoplift is usually what we get or a, you know, stolen. Well, we're not even really allowed to chase stolen vehicles, but if you get a break in contact and then you, you know, damn well and good that that's that same car, but they're now on a native American reservation. Sorry, you don't get to follow it anymore. Does Pinal County have any sort of what's your working relationship with Tohono Odom nation where, where, Hey, you know, we're, we're working. This is, it's, 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 one fight for both of us, you know, we all got to work together on that. Or is it still the same? Cause I know there's federal laws as well. Is it still the same? Like, Oh, you know, Hey, I hit the, the reservation line. I can't go any further. It, uh, it really depends. <clears throat> um, so when we're chasing bad guys, like you said, if, if you, if you lose contact and you regain contact, um, for us, it's more of a call like, uh, a lot of times we let the sergeant make that call like, Hey, if you think that this is a non-native and, and we're going to chase them, let's, let's go. Um, we, we let them make that call on the fly. The relationship with TO is good. Um, but they are very much a sovereign nation and they will let you know that every time you talk to them. So, um, but I don't want to say that in a sense that they won't work with us because they don't stonewall us. Um, they will help us if, if, uh, we need to go to a village and, check somebody out, whatever. They'll go with us. They'll help us. Um, and they'll kind of run the show on their land. Um, so we work with them. Well, we are actually, we're in the process right now of getting a cooperative, um, agreement on paper so that we can do that type of work with them. And that's the first time it'll be done with TO. They've never, they've never been open to that in the past. And it, and now they're open to that because, uh, we will also be helping them on the North end because they have such a big reservation and, you think manpower short in a SO you should see. Oh yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I know I talked to a, a Gila river guy one time and, and, uh, the Gila river, uh, Indian reservation stretches from, uh, the West Valley, uh, you know, Levine area, uh, all the way over to Santan Valley, really yeah. Queen Creek area. And then it goes South. Right. Uh, and, and he's like, yeah, there's six of us. Yeah. Like what? Holy shit. Yep. Like, dude, there's eight of me 
for a precinct. Yeah. Like, come on. Now. Yeah. Well, so, you know, seven to eight, but uh, and Gila River. I don't know if they still hold the record, but they were the most violent per capita in the nation. Oh yeah, no, they're point. still there. Yeah. yeah, we can we can talk about that offline <laughs> a little bit, but yeah, they are. Uh, as I understand it, they're they're still up there, and that violence uh, has crossed. Come come out of the reservation right, into right. surrounding jurisdictions, and yep. um, there's uh, all sorts of chatter uh, going on uh, about that. Um, one thing that that uh, Pinal County, uh, I think you guys really came into your own, or at least you became more noticed at a national level, was with your experience in uh, in like national television, right? Uh, with uh, live PD. Mm-hmm. And then is it 60 days in? Is that the other one? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you laugh. I yeah. So, uh, well, okay, well, let's just start with the one that makes you giggle. Uh, what is the premise of, is it 60 days in the County jail? Yeah. Okay. So the, the premise, and it's a funny story because uh, I'll go backwards from live PD. So, uh, again, if you go back to my, my heydays of cartel chasing 2010 era, we were getting a lot of national exposure because of the border fight. It was an, it was on the national platform. It was a political discussion nationally, all that. Um, so during that time frame, we had a lot of media sources interested in our county and the fight. And we had a sheriff at that time that was very vocal about everything, right? So he attracted a lot of attention in that sense. Um, and being in charge of those operations, our PIO at the time would hand a lot of the media off to me. So the media, they may ride with us for a night. We may take them out showing them, you know, here's how operations go. Um, so we had a lot of media ex- exposure, and I, I made some friends in that realm, in the national media and in the, the local media. Um, and so fast forward to 2017, we take office. One of those people reaches out to me and says, hey, we have this thing. It's called Live PD, and uh, we want you guys to, to help us out with it. And... I said, okay, well, we're like a little bit busy right now because we're brand new administration and trying to get our feet on the ground. So that's going to be a no-go right now. Come back and visit at the end of the year. So I go in and I tell the sheriff and I said, hey, I got contacted. Here's what they wanted. But I told him no. I said, I don't think it's good timing. And he's like, yeah, I agree. We're too busy. And so um, I told him they're going to be coming back at the end of the year. So the end of 2017, Live PD comes back and they, they hit us up. And so I do like a it was about a 30 minute interview with the executive producers and uh, some of their staff where they just kind of asked us about the demographics of the County, kind of how we're structured, blah, blah, blah. And they decide, okay, we want to do it. So that gets live PD in the door and they do their thing. Um, Out of that, because live PD was an A and E thing, A and E was doing this show 60 days in, which is the premise behind it is you have, people that volunteer to go to jail and the goal is to make it a full 60 days in jail um, on this program while they're being filmed. And so the executive producer uh, contacts us and the sheriff and I go sit down with him and, and uh, he says, you know, here's the the premise of the show. And I'm like, dude, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I said, nobody's going to watch that shit. He says, well, so you guys would be season five. And I was like, oh, so some people do watch this show. People watch shit like this. <laughs> so we, we hear his pitch and um, the sheriff and I kind of talk about it. And, and one of the things we kept coming back to is like, well, Live PD gave us the opportunity to highlight the work of our guys and gals on the street. Right. Because it, it uh, kind of showcased them. And we weren't scared of it uh, because there's a there's a lot of cops. Let me tell you that we're not cool with it. 
Um, and they were like, this is bullshit. You know, they're going to be filming what we do, blah, blah, blah. We were actually really comfortable with it because we said, yeah, and, you know, you guys do a good job. So we're not worried about it because them filming you isn't going to be a big deal because they're filming you do, doing a good job. And we thought it would highlight everybody well, which it ended up doing. So we kind of felt the same about 60 days in. We said, this is an opportunity for us to highlight the jail too, because detention gets shit on all the time, man. Um, and they do a really tough job in there, but they get treated like second-class citizens sometimes, right? Detention officers get looked down on sometimes by some. So we felt like, wow, oh, this would be an opportunity to to put them in the, the limelight and show off the hard work that they do. Um, so that was kind of the premise behind going into it and, and jumping into it. And uh, it was a little bit nerve-wracking because you're putting civilians in your jail. Um, we had had a stabbing in our jail. We have Mexican mafia in our jail. We, it's a, a heavy gang influence. It's very racial in our jail, by, and it's racial because of them, not because we designed it that right, way. Right. Um, so we knew there's a bunch of that going on. Um, so it's a little bit nerve-wracking when you put normal citizens in there um, to try and live in there for 60 days. Um, but we ended up, we did it and, uh, they gave us the opportunity, they being A&E and the executive producer, they wanted to do it differently for our season. So our season, instead of just putting them in there, not knowing each other and, um, just trying to make it 60 days, they said for your season, we want you guys to actually give them some type of mission. And so they're going into your jail with a specific mission that they have to accomplish. And we're like, okay, cool. So we were looking at uh, how are drugs getting in? Uh, what's our gang problem really look like? Who's running the jail, you know, for gangs and stuff like that? How are they passing information? We wanted to know all this stuff that you really can't get insight into without snitches. So it worked out perfect because we put snitches in the jail basically right. and, and planted them with a mission in mind. Um, and they kind of went through it and we put the cameras up and you have to like with the inmates, they're very savvy. And so they saw cameras going in. So we basically told everybody, including our staff, we were doing this documentary on, on border crimes and, and jails that are dealing with border crimes. So <clears throat> under that premise, we get the cameras in they start the show. We, we infiltrate our people in um, by going through like a normal booking process. So we had to uh, make up these fake names, fake bookings, uh, get them booked in and get them into our jail. Um, and then, you know, as you watch the show, people always ask me about the show. They're like, is that real? Like, is what happened? Hap yeah, that's exactly what happened. Like all the shit. There's editing, of course, and they right. Hollywood yeah. up a little bit. Um, but we had no influence on like, we didn't say, okay, now do this or now do that. Um, we just gave them their marching instructions. Uh, we told, you know, the participants sign their, their life away. Um, and they also sign a waiver saying they understand that if they commit crimes, we're going to charge them with crimes. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, we had, that was another nerve wracking thing because, uh, one of our guys was a former Latin King who had done time and our concern was that he would go back to his old ways. And he kind of did, he kind of drifted back towards that. And, uh, he ended up getting in a couple of fights and he ended up smacking one kid around. And so we were concerned that we were going to have to charge him with assault. Um, and luckily as jail rules go, you know, it's, it's typically no victim, no crime. Right. So, um, he lucked out on that one, but it was, it was an interesting time and it ended up being a, a cool, show to highlight our jail and it did show you know that that uh we had a lot of hard working people in there we gained some great intel out of it 
Uh, we were able to figure out some of how they were smuggling in drugs, which allowed us to put in countermeasures to, to better our security and better uh, the the ability to catch them bringing it in, um, how they were passing notes, all that kind of stuff. So it, it did us did some you, good. Did you yeah. solid? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yep. Well, and I was, I had a, um, uh, uh, well, his name was also Matt, who's a dark horse Lionheart on, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. He, uh, uh, has some pretty good footage of uh, Phoenix PD and, and other agencies. And he and I talked a little bit about with the cancel culture of 2020 uh, and, and Life PD being kicked by the wayside right. and even chased the dog from Paw Patrol, nearly <laughs> nearly following them out the door, no shit. Uh, which was just slightly unbelievable. <laughs> um, uh, but it sounds like you had an overall positive experience with yeah. Life PD and and even to this day, I would, because it's been what, two, two years or yeah, so, yeah. um, to this date, I mean, do people still come up to me like, Oh yeah. When I saw you guys on life PD and it yeah. was, yeah. well, for me, it's 60 days. Cause I was on 60 days. Oh, okay. With the sheriff, okay. So they all recognize me. Well, not all, but I mean, you'll have people recognize you from 60 days in, um, but the sheriff, that's where it really catapulted him on a national platform because w- what ended up happening with the sheriff, like we talked about before he goes out, on the street and and will work he'll go to calls he'll pull people over whatever well live pd was riding with our people and the sheriff was showing up on scenes and so the executive or not the executive producer the on-site um producer was like hey she asked our pio she was like hey the sheriff what, what's he doing out here and she says well he goes out he, he goes out and works the street from time to time so live pd was like well could could we maybe ride with him one night and so um you know, the sheriff came in, he told us, he was like, Hey, this is what they're asking. And I'm like, well, like, Hey, I don't like you working the street. Cause you're the sheriff. Right. Right. I need, I need you, <laughs> right. I need you alive and safe and, right. and behind your desk. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I don't see a problem with it, you know, if they want to ride with you and, and, uh, instantly that was a hit because they, they had a head of an agency now that they were, and he was out doing cop work. And so I think the cops across the country were like, right on, you know, you got a, a, head of an agency actually out with his cops. Um, so that carried over well. And then nationally, just because of the guy he is, I mean, he's just a, he's a good dude. So that carried over and on a national platform, people were like, who's this sheriff in Arizona right. that's out working on live PD. So he started getting his own little following a live PD following. And then of course that turned into him being offered the position on that live PD wanted show where they said, Hey, you want to come help us host? And so he would go out one day a week and, and do the hosting on, on that show. And so it gained him a lot of national popularity and upped his social media and all that stuff, which actually people, people will sometimes haters will dog him on that. They'll say, Oh, you know, you're just a a social media whore or media whore. Um, But the, the people that say that don't understand an elected officials position, he really does have to communicate with, his constituents right and he's he's communicating obviously nationally um but it really helped on the local level too because he got so popular nationally that he was able to also communicate on his social media platforms and get a lot of play um locally and so that really helped the agency because every time he would get more popular, the agency gets more sure. popular. And uh, the live PD thing for the officers that, for, for our deputies that were on there, 
they ended up starting getting their own little following right, and, right. and they become their own little rock stars in their communities. And it was cool on, it was, it's cool to watch on social media when you watch some of the feeds and you see the positivity in a very negative time, because you'll see people get on there and they're like, Oh, that's my co-. Like, I know him. Or right, like, right. I go right. to church with him or my kids play ball with him. And, um, so to me, it was really like what I think community policing is, is that whole tie in with the community and the human behind it. Um, that's what live PD really did for us. It, it bonded our community with us and really helped us have their backing. Yeah. And I, I, I think it was a damn shame that it ended up, you know, going by the wayside yeah. and just being, being subjected to, uh, uh, that cancel culture. I will say that, uh, that because of that, so I've talked to, because of that social media presence, I've talked to cops, uh, across the state in different states and the general consensus is, yeah, man, well, if I ever get defunded, I'm sure as shit going to go down to Pinal County and go work there. <laughs> yeah. So, I well, think- and it, and that's the other piece that people don't realize that, that we did realize early on was that uh, Live PD specifically was going to be a great recruiting tool. And it has been. We, we have people that come in from out of state, especially, you'd be like, how, like, why here? And they're like, well, I saw you on Live PD, and I, I want to work for you. I'm like, cool. And uh, it's been a great recruiting tool. And then even locally, because we're one of the few agencies in the state that will actually let our cops be cops. Like, mm-hmm. we, we, they have a job to do, and we let them do it. Um, so we're starting to attract even, you know, surrounding agencies. And, and there's cops that are willing to, because we're a county, so we're not going to pay as good as some of the cities in the metro area but they're willing to take a pay cut to have a job they enjoy. And a take-home ride. Yep, take-home always <laughs> helps. Yep, that adds value. <laughs> and then they're not, they're, uh, you guys are pretty much all those Chevy trucks, right? We're everything. We're ta- Tahoes, Tahoe's, and, yeah, okay. Tahoe's and Chevy trucks. The new Chevy trucks the guys are really liking. Um, and uh, we, we had a few Dodges, uh, but they just did those as a test run. So typically GMC and Chevy is what we're sticking with. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are uh, definitely, definitely up there on the, uh, uh, hey, hey, we, sure, you take a pay cut, but we're going to give you this really badass four wheel drive <laughs> truck. And we're like, oh, uh, all right. That sounds like fun. I'll come do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we have a few perks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you touched a little bit on it. One of the things, uh, when I come into, to interviews, I rarely, I mean, I'll have like a very rough outline, but you talked about recruiting, um, from an administrative standpoint. Now your position, uh, you have a, that, that unique sort of view of, okay, well, this is why we're getting officers or this is why we're not getting officers. Have you guys, have you, you noticed uh, a, a dip or a decline in uh, recruiting uh, or, you know, uh, increased difficulties with retaining officers after after 2020 or throughout, I should so, say throughout 2020, yeah. we're only we're only seven, eight days out of it. Right, so. Yeah. Um, so not really a decline um, and not really. So we didn't lose officers. And I again, I'll I'll attribute the fact that we allow our people to work. Um, and we really didn't change operations when, when, uh, when all the cancel culture stuff started with cops specifically, and they started demanding us to do all this stuff that we already do. Um, we kind of just kept operations normal. Cause we were, you know, we would meet with community groups and they would say, you guys need to do this, this, and this. And we're like, yeah, we're doing that already. And here's how we do it. Oh, well, you need to do this. Wait, yep. We're doing that too. Well, and you need to stop doing this. We haven't done that in years. Ah, oh, okay. So we, we really just communicate with our, our community, which, uh, you know, is a good model because as long as you're giving them information, they're good. And then I think our cops were not feeling the pressure 
um, that some of the cops were around the nation of, of uh, how it was coming down on them. So I think that helped us helped us in the retention aspect. Um, the recruiting never really dipped. And again, I, I think it's because we allow our people just to do their job. And um, I think like if you ask people that work with us, I think you, you would understand that if they mess up, they mess up, they get dealt with, it's fine. Um, and we move on. Uh, but for the most part, we, we just want them to do their, we hire them to do a job. They're entrusted with a badge and a gun and, you know, to um, arrest people and all that stuff. So we don't need to micromanage them. We just let them go do their thing. And I think that has allowed us to, to keep a steady pull. Now we're still not pulling the numbers because the problem is nationally, I think you're seeing a dip in people wanting to do this job right. or wanting to stay in this job. So the problem then becomes, especially us on the outskirts of a major metro areas, we're all fishing from the same hole and you're only going to get so many fish out of sure. that hole, right? And so uh, you have cops that are looking at, uh, you know, if they're looking at Phoenix PD and, you know, if I have uh, if I have a Spanish certification, I get this much more. If I am an expert with my gun, I get this much more and all these, you know, pay incentives uh, and they'll look at the pay piece of it. And so you'll get the, the Phoenix PDs that suck up 300 at a time. And then the rest of us are scrambling sure. for, you know, five or five, 10. Five people and we've got nine slots and you're like, well, right. shit. I guess, uh, you, you know, we're not, we have, we have people trying to move into specialties and it's like, yeah, no, you're, you'll go if we can get somebody to take your spot, which, yeah. oh, by the way, is a 22 week Academy. And then it's an additional 18 weeks of field training. Yeah. So just, you know, sit tight, I guess. Right. Um, and we have the same thing where we promote detectives, but they can't go to detectives sure. until we have a backfill for them. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, the, the current events that, that we've seen, it's, it's difficult to inspire people to get right. into this job. Well, one thing I've found though, and it's, it's crazy to me, but it's, it really is a thing is the younger generation, the, this youngest generation of cops. So when I sat down and took my oil board for my position, when I got hired on, you know, why do you want this job? Why do you want to do this job? And we would all give the answer that we know we're supposed to give you. Oh, I want to help people yep. and blah, blah, blah. These new cops, they're not just saying that, like they believe it to their core. Like that is what they want to do. That's why they want to get into this job. They want to be part of something bigger. They want to make an impact on their community or, or whatever community they're going to work in. Um, and they want to do this greater good. And they believe that with all their soul. And, uh, back when I was starting, that was true. But I also wanted to drive fast. I wanted to shoot guns. Yeah, you know, yeah. that kind <laughs> go, of shit. Go go Mach two with my hair on fire. <laughs> right, code three right. for an hour down the down the county line. Absolutely. Right. So it's it's crazy to see because they are very very committed to that mission of of doing good and and uh, being a part of something bigger. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with you. Uh, the I call it. I mean, shit. I shouldn't call them kids. I'm only thirty, but uh, the the twenty one year olds that I've seen come out of the academy you know, by and large, and they, you know, it started for them. It started even before they, they were explorers or cadets. Right. And then they went to school for a few years and, uh, or they, you know, they just got done being a cadet and then jumped right over, you know, into being a, a police aide and then are coming in to be officers. Um, and, and it's cool to see, you know, like, Hey, you, you're, you're a part of our patrol team. Oh, but you know what, but you've shown that you're already dedicated to this agency or at least to the, profession of law enforcement, right. you know, throughout your time, uh, you know, 
up, up through, up through your youth. So that's been, that's been exciting to see. Um, 20, 27 years in what's next. Ooh, I don't know, man. Uh, probably retirement and, uh, just honestly, I don't know if I want to do anything. I think I'll have to do something after this cause I'm, I'm a pretty antsy guy, but I don't know. The, the sheriff's been, he's a businessman, man. He's been trying to kind of guide me cause I'm not a businessman. I'm a cop and I've been a cop like my whole life. And that's all I've known and loved. Um, and I'm not very savvy in the business world. I'm, I'm just not. And, uh, so he's been trying to kind of guide me and help me, uh, work towards my afterlife. And like I said, I've been writing some of the cartel stuff down cause, uh, the sheriff just wrote a book and, and he was like, dude, you can do it. Cause I'm like, there's no way, man. Like I can't write a book. What am I going to write about? And you know, when you start diving into some of your stories and stuff, um, he's, he's got me on, on point to write some of this stuff down and kind of put it together collectively. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and make 2021 the year that I can actually like finish some form or fashion of a, of all these collected thoughts and stories, uh, to put together, see if I can make something happen with that. Um, and then outside of that, I don't know, man, I've, I've been, uh, just kind of concentrating on living right now. (laughs) And, uh, I think one thing this being this long in this job and coming towards the end does to you is it makes you realize that, uh, the shit that you thought was important is not all that important. And, uh, like, especially when you look back at your younger years and you go balls to the wall and you sacrifice your family for the job, then you get at the tail end of it and you realize, man, I had that backwards and I should have been doing it the other way because now that I'm at the end, I am so thankful that I have the same wife and I have, you know, one family unit, right? uh, Because that doesn't happen a lot. And so getting towards the end, I'm, I'm looking and I'm like, man, I'm glad my family's intact and my marriage is intact because that's, that's what really matters to me now is, is I'm at the end and you know, when you walk out the door, cause I've seen it happen with, with buddies of mine that I've worked my whole career with. When you leave, shit doesn't stop. No, it just, it's a train, man. It yeah. just keeps on rolling. That keeps doesn't even on. stop at the station. They right. Just, exactly. You just got to jump off and pray to Jesus on the way out. That's right? it. And you're, you're forgot about, it. I mean, and it's not in a bad way. It's not like people didn't like you or whatever. You're just, you're not there anymore. And the train keeps moving. So they're seeing new scenery and you become a thing of the past. And, and that's another difficult thing, man. When you get to this part of your career is being a has been because, right. you know, all my cool guy shit is behind me. Um, and, uh, it's a tough spot where you get to the end and you're like, man, these young fuckers don't even know who I am, you know, or the shit that I did. And I did some pretty cool shit. Um, and so it kind of, that kind of kicks you in the balls a little bit and, and you have to kind of process all that stuff. But then once you do, you figure out that, okay, that's cool. I still did cool shit. Um, I've got my family intact and there's a lot of stuff to do that's not cop shit. And it would kind of be cool to just kind of be like Homer Simpson drifting backwards into that into bush. the bush, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of exit out. So I, I don't know, man. That's I'm just kind of cruising along and seeing what comes up. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you've got, I mean, with your your wealth of experience, I mean, you could. Uh, uh, my buddy Brent and I had uh, 
some of the same college professors uh, at Arizona State University. And he and I maintain that one of our favorite professors was this guy named Coy Johnson, who was with Mesa Police Department. Mm. Uh, and he was a, a detective for them. And what we appreciated the most about him is that his experience, he was the guy writing the book, not the guy reading the book and <laughs> teaching it to us. Literally wrote the book yeah. that we used for class. Um, and there was, uh, there was a lot of appreciation in the knowledge that he had because it was like we talked about earlier, there's no bullshit to it. He's not, and he's not grasping for ideas right. and stuff that he experienced and, and lived through. And, you know, Hey, well, the reason you're not allowed to pursue people in major metropolitan areas is because let me tell you about this time. We pursued a guy onto the ASU campus and his car exploded into a thousand pieces. You're like, right. Oh, okay. Now that makes a little bit more. Oh, you were the one who did that. Yeah. Well, thanks for yeah. writing that policy exactly. for us. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I, 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 I think you've had a hell of a career and, uh, and whatever you end up choosing to do, if it's fade out into that bush, man, like give it, just give it all you got. I, I do, uh, also appreciate, uh, your statement about, you know, having one wife and, uh, that's something that far too many people have to, uh, oh. you know, go through and it's, uh, right, wrong or indifferent, you know, whatever leads up to it. Um, but I, there was a Sergeant who sat me down and he was very frank cause I was, uh, finally at the point in my career, my agency, you got to do three years and then you can test for specialties. Okay. And it was like, okay, my two career goals, detectives and SWAT. And sometimes those don't play well with each right. other. <laughs> um, you like, you're, they're not going to tell you no, but a lot of people will be like, eh, I don't know what you want to do. And he told me straight up, look, man, what led to my first divorce is that I was playing both sides of the house, mm -hmm. but I was never at my own house. Right. Like, well, shit. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And so it was then that I made the decision that, you know, whatever opens up first, that's what I'll go for. And the other one can just wait. Cause it, part of me says, you know, 20, well now for us, if you got hired after 2014, 25 years is a long time, but then you break it down. Like you said, with your, your ADHD into three to five year chunks mm -hmm. and you start to look at, okay, well, what can I accomplish within that time period? Right. Um, right. But what I would encourage people to do, and I had one of my patrol sergeants say this to me is, you know, just, Take one thing at a time and get mm -hmm. really fucking good at it. Right. Be be the go-to person for that thing. Right. And then if you want to move on after that, fine. But don't be, you know, oh, one one you're here, one you're here, one you're here. Right. And then Well, and you have to understand in this career, <clears throat> the the way I would approach a, a new job and and it would happen is you essentially forget whatever you were doing. Like if, when I was a motor, I was a ticket writing, accident taking, DUI doing dude. When I was a narc, I give a shit about any DUI laws. Didn't know them. Didn't right. care. I didn't, it wasn't my thing. And so you, you just dive into whatever your thing is, your specialty. You focus solely on that because there's other people. And it's, it's a lot like being on a SWAT team because if my job is to watch this door, that's all I have to worry about is this door. Somebody else is worrying about the other door. So it's the same thing in your career. When you dive into detectives, whatever your detective position is, if it's property, Get into property 100%. Don't worry about dope. Don't worry about person's crime. Don't worry about any of that shit. Focus on your thing and get really good at that. And then when you move to the next thing, get really good at that because it's going to round you out. You're going to have all this knowledge because you'll always have the basic cop knowledge there. Um, but you're going to get all these different experiences and know all of this different stuff. And then at the end of that, you'll be the person that is then going back and teaching the youngsters and, and you'll you'll know because you have been there. So you're teaching them from the aspect of don't, don't do this. Like we already screwed this up and we know, right. you know how it, how it ends. So don't do that. And, and as for the family life too, that's the same thing is you have to, 
these younger cops now get a bad rap for not being loyal to the organization, right? Um, and they get that rap because they're more loyal to their family. And that's a tough pill for me to swallow. And I, I don't, because I'm an old school cop. So I do believe in loyalty to the agency. But at the same time, I've watched guys destroy their family lives over the years. And so I can't be a proponent of being so loyal to the agency that you disregard your family. Because I'm telling you, I'm at the end. The agency doesn't give a fuck about you. They're going to move on. They're not going to be there for you after you finish this career. It's that family that you destroy. That's who's going to be there for you. So you got to make sure that you're investing along the way. And if you think your your kids won't grow up in front of you without you, you're, you're wrong. You're very mistaken because they will grow up before you know it. It goes faster than you think. And if you didn't have the proper input during that time frame, or if you neglected your duties as a dad, you are a complete failure or a mom. You're a complete failure on one aspect and that's your family and again those are the people that are going to carry on the legacy of your name so yeah you, you, it's a it's a weird career right now um and i would so i would say to all your young people out there don't believe the hype about the you, yes you have to be loyal to your agency um to a sense but you can balance that with your family life and don't ever give up your family life for an agency because it could be the best agency in the world. And they still don't give a shit about you. Yeah, at the end they're, of the they're, day. Not gonna, they're not going to marry you and fold your laundry and, and <laughs> nope. make dinner for you when you get home. Exactly. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, well, before we conclude, I just wanted to talk about, you know, uh, kind of current events, get your take on the craziness, uh, in mm. DC. Um, because part of me and I'm going to get, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, there's, I'm seeing on social media, uh, I, I have a, I don't know that it's a unique position, but I have like two people, two types of people on social media. Yep. They either believe one way or they believe the complete other way. Right. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of, well, you know, this is, uh, this is white privilege, uh, and this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, well, so far the only damage that I've seen, and I'm not condoning what they did. I don't right. know that you need to take over a country's capital, like outside of wartime, right. um, which some people think that it's time for that. I'm, we're not going to even begin to dive into that. That's, that's, a, a, that's another fucking two hour podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like, okay, like president Trump, uh, I, I don't even know what goes on in that guy's mind. Uh, I'm not even going to begin to imagine what goes on in his mind. I, I might get scared and develop some sort of issues <laughs> over that. Um, but it, the Capitol bird, the Capitol building is not a torched mess, right? It wasn't, they didn't take over six city blocks, uh, and, and, you know, beat people right. who tried to enter. They, uh, they didn't, shoot to my knowledge nobody shot at a police officer uh, i know that that one uh, dc officer uh, has has died i believe it was through a, a cardiac event yeah it sounded like um it. as opposed to an event of uh, a, a traumatic injury mm-hmm. um and then i know that uh at least one of the uh um, are we calling them pro i guess we're calling them protesters, protesters right yeah. if uh, you know you're burning milwaukee to the ground you're a protester so right. if you're taking over washington dc okay i'm going to still call you a protester uh, but I know that that female Air Force veteran was was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it to me, it it says a couple things. And again, this is where the hate's going to come in. I don't know that anybody on either side of the aisle truly trusts the government. 
Right. And I think what this demonstrated is there's a, a great meme that says we spend $11 trillion on defense budgets and there's a dude wearing a fucking horned animal on his head standing at the Speaker of the House's chair. Right. Um, what I think for both sides of the aisle, um, I think it should show the representatives of government who maybe over the past have forgotten that they are representatives. Um, there seems to be this, this, uh, Hey, you work for me attitude. And I, part of the reason I dislike Joe Biden is because when he had that union guy and the welder or whatever he was, then, and, and Joe Biden points him and goes, I don't work for you. You're an elected official for this country. It's a government of the people, by the people and for the people. But, uh, I'm curious as to what, what your thoughts are on, on what occurred. I am torn because, um, a piece of me is pissed off because those are sacred halls. Um, and I don't, I, I think you had an element, a criminal element that infiltrated the protesters. And I think that criminal element was pushing some of the crap going on inside those halls, the breaking of stuff, the breaking into the building itself, the looting of the stuff inside that shit is unacceptable to me because again, those are sacred halls. <clears throat> Not so much because of the people that are in them, but because of what they represent to our country, right? Um, and our forefathers and all everything that our countries went through to get to where we're at these days. Well, maybe not where we're at these days, but everything our country went through to become a country and to stay a republic. Um, so that part of me was very pissed off that day seeing those people do that because... To me, that would be the same as them busting into a church and, and taking down a cross and, you know, pulling up the pews and, and that kind of stuff. Um, it, it resembled that same kind of thing to me. But the other part of me is also like, yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, the politicians needed a wake-up call. Right. And that day was a wake-up call to them like, the people are done with you no matter what side you're on we're done we're d because it was very obvious this last election was not and and no matter who you think won the election was not conducted correctly there there oh, was absolutely some shit not. going on right yeah. I, so I, yeah I'm, I'm with you on that one uh, so that part of me appreciates the fact that all those people showed up in washington dc to tell our leadership that we're fed up. We're fed up with the way things are going. We no longer want it to go this way. And that, you know, there was people saying, this is our Lexington. This is our Concord. That day was it. Um, which of course it didn't end up being. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how it's going to get fixed because if you think about it and, and I've told a lot of people this, we are Rome all over again. And we have reached the point where there's some kind of reset that has to happen right. for things to start functioning correctly because this election was not representative of a democratic election. It right. was, it was just a mess and it's beyond me how we can be one of the top superpowers in the world and not have a national election that is the same, right? When we're voting for the president of the United States, we should all be voting in the same system, the same way, monitored, open, transparent. There should be no issue with that. And how the hell we can't do that is beyond me, man. Uh, but I think we're at a critical point in our country. I think that our leaders are, are pushing people towards a civil war because they continue 
to piss off people and they continue to act like they don't work for us and and it's starting to push people towards their limits and I'm a, I'm actually afraid of what's going to happen because you know as well as I do we're stuck in the middle. Right. As cops, we get stuck in the middle of this whole mess like those cops did that day. Absolutely. Those guys, I mean, their their whole uh it was it was their bad luck, you know, that that one day years ago they were like, "Yeah, I think I'm going to go be a capital police officer." Right. And and now here they are and it's these same politicians who vilified law enforcement for a fucking year right or near enough um I, all of law regardless of the decisions made by individual police officers right. uh which we cover those in other episodes i'm not going to get into them right now because again we're, we're, we, that's another two-hour conversation um but but if you're going to vilify law enforcement officers and then oh wait i'd kind of need you mm-hmm. Like, I still don't like you, but can you please protect me? Like, right. yeah, like fuck off. I'm yep. sorry. Like, no, I'm not sorry. I, I get my point of anger comes with, I'm, I'm with you that I'm angry with the whole let's breach the walls um, because I, I don't stand for looting no matter who's doing it. Right. Uh, or, or what their perceived cause may be. Right. Um, if you're going to go to one of these rallies and you are going to pound your fist on the table and ah, rah, 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 the election's a sham. It's time for a civil war because my constitutional Republic is being taken. Oh, Oh, Hey, cool podium. I'm going to drag that thing back to, right. you know, Missouri or wherever I live with me. Like no jackass. Cause you probably just spent, you know, however many weeks and months on social media to say, Oh, well, I can't believe these people are looting shoe stores. I can't believe these people are looting Walmarts. And what are you doing? Right. You're looting the United States Capitol. Well, building. And, and I, I was good that day with everything until the actual breaches of the building. I was even good with them being right up on the doorstep of the building at the door surrounding that whole thing. I was cool with that because I felt like at that point what they were doing, because they had disrupted Congress at that right. point. They had caused Congress to break apart, go into to separate rooms, all this kind of stuff. So they, right there, they accomplished their goal. They let Congress know, like, we are done. We are out here and we're not happy. And at that point, they had they had done no damage they hadn't stolen anything. They hadn't used any violence, but they were right at the doorways, the windows, everything else. I was completely good with that until they, until they started breaching doors and windows and doing that kind of stuff. That's when I was like, this is bullshit, man. And, uh, you know, from then on out, I was just pissed off because, again, I, I felt like they had destroyed a sacred area or they had violated the sacred area. Um, but them surrounding that building and disrupting what was going on in Congress I felt was kind of needed. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I I think that if you were to take the American people, all pretty much all of them, I think we're all being tired of told who you can and cannot marry or, Mm -hmm. you know, love you can. And Hey, you cannot own this type of gun. Hey, you can't own this much property without paying this much money. I think as a, as a whole, we're all kind of over the bullshit and we'd probably all stand fucking shoulder to shoulder. Right. You know, for, for a lot of these things, but it's, it's these figureheads, these politicians that are doing, I don't know if it's just in the course of them pushing their own personal agenda, if that's what's 
tearing us apart at you know at the seams. It's like they're literally taking the stars and bars and just just shredding right. it, you know, down the line. Um, well, and what people don't understand or they haven't been paying attention to is this has been a long time in process. You know, it's it hasn't just pe- people are saying you know the last few years. It's not the last few years. This has been going on. Our kids have been indoctrinated for probably a decade now. It started way back before that even. Uh, but this has been a, it's the whole slow boil of the frog thing, sure. right? And and uh, if people think that some of the leadership in Washington is for the USA, they're wrong. They're, these people are for themselves. Absolutely. And, and whatever benefits them, and they don't care who is behind what benefits them, because there's enemies of our country that are directly influencing our politics and of and have direct influence on our leaders. And dude... When, like, when my grandpa was fighting in World War II, that was called treason. And yeah. you got killed for that. You they know? just took you out back and shot exactly. you. Exactly. And uh, I think that's what the pissed off people of America understand is like, they're, they're just screaming, like, this shit is happening right in front of us and nobody's doing anything. And that's why I, I said I'm, I'm just afraid of what's happening next because I, I truly think they're going to they're going to push us to some form of uh, civil unrest and uh, civil war type situation, even if it's just pockets of it around the country. Sure. Well, and it can't be that far fetched, right? It, it doesn't require, uh, you know, a, a Hollywood screenwriter to realize that somewhere, China, Russia, Iran, wherever, even if Vladimir Putin in Russia is sitting there like, well, this is crazy. He's got to have at least one aide who is like, it's that easy. Yeah. Like you, they don't even like they don't even have any guns or if they did they didn't use them and like right. we we have like tanks and icbms and a whole shitload of very well-armed people like all right well uh, i'm gonna drop a plan because yeah, it's not that hard apparently to take over the u.s capital right so i think that that may hopefully change i think that uh you know the security measures will probably oh yeah uh, that, increase there was plenty of talk about that <laughs> yeah and i would have to imagine that capital police officers are still sitting there you know three days later or two days later still writing reports yeah. oh shit their chief already <laughs> resigned oh did they yeah. yeah i didn't even see that yeah. yeah i i can't even begin to imagine um what those guys uh, and girls must be going through over there uh so to uh to dc capital police if you're listening that hold the line guys yeah. um you know we're we're all still thinking about you. I actually work with a guy who was with DC Capitol Police and I texted him about it and his response was, if one more fucking person texts me about this. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. He was like, but yeah, no, this shit's crazy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's it's been an interesting day. We're going to see where the world goes. Yep. Um, maybe retirement will, uh, will uh, you'll end up just knowing what you do because you have to put on your, you know, grab your rations in your backpack and just start walking yeah, through the desert. That's it, dude. I might have to get my buffalo horns get and just buffalo horns and paint your face and you might have a job after all. That's Who knows? Uh, well, uh, Chief Deputy Matt Thomas, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show, man. Absolutely. Good. I know we were we were working through schedule changes there for both of us and, uh, and the stars finally lined up and, yes, and here we are. Good to be here. Uh, uh, as a last point, Again, hopefully people are still with us after that one. I, I did. Uh, I did call President-elect Joe Biden a motherfucker. So there's that. I got that going for me. Uh, batting a thousand with uh, half the nation right now. But uh, uh, my last statement, uh, my last question, rather, to all my guests is that you have a microphone to the world. Uh, what does What does Matt want the world to know? Uh, where, where do you want the world to hear? 
what I want the world to hear is just, uh, I think that one of the big problems with the world is we have forgotten that we're all human beings. And so just start treating each other like human beings instead of being assholes and uh, the world will be a better place. I think the world would see damn near an instantaneous change if people were stopped being at, or if people would stop being assholes to Absolutely. one another. That goes, uh, that goes a long way. And to those of you, the, the cops that are out there listening, I can tell you right now, um, you know, on this note of, of, uh, stop being assholes to people is that you may look, uh, at, at that tweaker and be like this motherfucker again. Um, but treating that person like a human being can go a long way because I have had, uh, you know, tatted gang members, MS 13, uh, you know, tatted all over their face. They have been more respectful to me than some of these soccer moms, uh, and, and soccer dads, uh, that, that I've encountered. Um, uh, and it's just a matter of, of respecting uh, one another. We will be bringing, I say we, like I got a mouse in my pocket. Uh-huh. I don't know why I do that. That's just something I do. Uh, I do have a guest uh, coming on. We haven't set up a date yet, uh, but he was on the other side of the coin in that he's uh, he served time in uh, in prison. So he's going to come on and, and talk about experience. And he's probably going to make fun of cops. And I'm going to laugh about it because I think it'll be actually kind of an, an interesting <laughs> thing to, to see and, and uh, to be a part of. So uh, with that, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I do have a schedule change coming up on my end. Uh, and with that, uh, Detective Life comes on call uh, and, and occasionally getting woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go out and do work. So um, you may see uh, a little bit of a dip in episodes. Uh, you may not. We're going to still keep trying to go through uh, and, and give you guys uh, the content that uh, hopefully you've come to, to know and love. So as always, uh, this is Kevin with Blue Line Millennial. Stay safe, and we'll see you on the road.